Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. The cat ate the canary, but don't lay any blame. Good old Mother Nature made it to the deep. So I get on those bankers from Zurich for doing pretty much the same. Rich, that little earworm is called The Cat Ate the Canary by Alan Rotenberg, and it's from an album called Journeys Volume 4. Not really sure what it is, but it's available on iTunes. It's a quirky little tune, and I think those are the ones that are the most entertaining as we kick off the show. Yeah, it gets us going in a, in a peppy mood. And Welcome, everybody, to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm going to go ahead and call this meeting to order. Rich, tell us why The Cat Ate the Canary. Well, we're kicking off the new year, and I guess this is our two-year anniversary show. It was two years ago. Episode 26. Yes, we we did King Kong, and so totally unrelated to King Kong are the movies we're covering uh, this week. Kind of kicking off the new year a bit more lighthearted. We're doing Cat and the Canary from 1939 with Bob Hope, The Ghostbreakers from 1940 with Bob Hope, and Scared Stiff from 1953 with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. These are horror comedies, probably more on the comedy side than horror, but uh, and even a little bit of music from uh, good old Dino thrown in. I don't know. These, this is something we talked about, and I thought it would be fun to kind of kick things off a little more lighthearted, especially after It's Alive, and, and we've, we've made some trips to the islands of Dr. Moreau, and uh, you know, lighten things up a little bit this month. And I, doesn't, I don't think it gets much lighter than Bob Hope and, and Jerry Lewis, so... Yep, it's good to kick off the year with a good laugh, and there were plenty in these movies, uh, which we'll talk about shortly. But let's review the list of new members from our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. We have two this month. One is John K. Dale, welcome, and Jonathan Inbody, welcome. And I do want to mention Jonathan. He's been on Monster Kid Radio. I don't know if you've heard his episodes I really enjoy his episodes. He has a very good recording voice, but he has his own podcast called X Meets Y, where he takes two very random movies and sets a time limit to come up with a script for merging those two movies. Yeah, X I, Meets Y. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty unique uh, uh, podcast, so a unique way to, to approach uh, an idea like that. Yeah, great idea. Welcome. Welcome. Before we get into those movies, we have some old business A few things to correct this time, but you know, it's interesting. When I go back and edit the podcast, I make a list of things that I'm not sure about. And I got to cross off about half the things because we did report correct information. I don't have to correct some things we said. Well, see, we're getting better over time. Yes, we are. And these are a couple... These aren't corrections. These are things we didn't know. So I'm just going to add it to the the whole cumulative experience of... Of listening to us. You told us all about the Invaders miniseries that Larry Cohen uh, created, I guess, and wrote, and then they had a 1990s sort of reboot miniseries sequel type thing. Couldn't remember the actor. Have you recalled it since then? Was it Richard Thomas? Richard Thomas was in it, but I think the main actor was Scott Bakula. 
Yes. yes Star yes, Trek yes. reference. Oh my gosh. Beat you to it. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I don't know that I have another Star Trek reference. I think you did well. Hey, great. So, and and we did mention Roy Thinnis uh, did reappear in that, and he played the same character, David Vincent. So it must have been more of a sequel or. Well, I mean, he's got a, such a small role in it. He, he like shows up and he's traveling in the car with Scott Bakula, I think, for a little bit, and. I think it's Scott Bakula. Was it Richard Tom? I don't know. It, it's small. It's a small minor role, and more so, I think he's just trying to. It's a tie to loose connection to the original series, so it's not a big part. Also, the female lead was Elizabeth Pena. You remember her? I remember when she first came on the scene. I really liked her as an actress. I don't know whatever happened to her. I remember the name, but... Yeah, I can't remember her big movie, but she was, like, at one point, I think, an up-and-coming actress. We wondered about Monster and the Girl, whether it was Universal or Paramount or whatever, and just to set that record straight, it was made by Paramount, but it was one of those that was later licensed by Universal. So I guess if you're to find it on home video, if it's available, it'd be Universal, not Paramount. I think it's part of the Universal Vault series. I I don't think it was ever included in any of the DVD sets. Okay. Oh, and I lied. There is a correction. And this, this though, is not just a normal correction. It's a huge correction. And I hope anyone that listened to the It's Alive episode hears this, because we mentioned the actor John Ryan, that he was killed in a helicopter crash filming a movie. That did not happen. I either misheard which actor it was or wasn't paying attention when Larry Cohen was telling, talking about that in the commentary, but John Ryan died from a stroke at the age of 70 in 2007, so slap my hand. That Maybe he <laughs> died of the stroke while the helicopter was getting ready to crash. Maybe. Well, you know, they didn't say he survived the helicopter <laughs> crash. Maybe he survived and then died of a stroke. I don't know. So, but, apologies. That's, that's, a, a, that's a nearly unforgivable... Part of old business is getting feedback on our previous episodes. We just mentioned It's Alive, and we have several voicemails. Let's get to those right away. First up is Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Hi, guys. Rob Kelly again, just calling in to say I uh, really enjoyed the It's Alive episode. I've only ever seen the first movie. I haven't seen the subsequent sequels or the remake. Uh, I really, I, I don't remember like really liking It's Alive, but I did enjoy its kind of like low rent grunginess. I remember thinking the movie was like super underlit. Everything was like dark and heavy shadows, which kind of fits the kind of whole like uh, low budgety feel to it. So I can't imagine what a, a remake would even be worth doing for because like, I, again, I think it's part of the appeal of Larry Cohen's movies is that they have this real underground sensibility. And I think if you try to do it with more money and kind of production values, it's, I don't know what you get. I understand that it's a little far afield of what you guys normally cover, but I appreciate that you did it because it is essentially still a monster movie. It's a baby monster running around killing people, so I think it fits. Um, the one movie of his that you guys didn't mention, I don't think, was God Told Me To, which I actually think is his best movie uh, about a bunch of people that start going around killing because they believe um, they're getting messages from God. And it's pretty out there for 1976 and still pretty relevant today. So um, if anyone who, like Larry Cohen movies, haven't seen that one. They should check that one out. It's really, really good. So anyway, uh, thanks for the episode. I really enjoyed it. And in terms of um, themes for future episodes, my one suggestion is um, I'm thinking interesting if you guys covered some anthology movies. Maybe you've done that in an older episode that I'm not familiar with. But it, uh, horror anthologies are, are 
so diverse. They've been doing them since like the 40s. So I think it'd be interesting if you picked like one or two horror anthologies and compared and contrasted. Obviously, I have my favorites and stuff. But anyway, I don't want to get cut off again because I talked too long. Thanks so much for the episode. Happy holidays, everybody. And we'll see you in 2019. Bye. Thank you for that feedback. I wanted to touch on something you talked about anthologies. You know, we did cover one anthology and it is probably one of our earlier episodes I believe I think we did a I think it was the May episode May 2017 where we talked to Peter Cushion Christopher Lee and, and Vincent Price and we did the House of the Drip Blood and I don't know if that episode is on our current SoundCloud feed or iTunes feed it may or may not be because that was one of our early episodes before we switched over to our own feed so um, if not, maybe we can re-upload that classic episode yeah. so you can go ahead and listen to it. But, uh, you know, that's a good idea. There's a lot of horror anthologies out there. And and Jeff had an interesting idea for a fun episode. I think taking our favorite stories from different horror anthologies and putting them together to make, like, the ultimate anthology film. Um, that would be interesting. I think... We'd have to maybe come up with a list of movies and the list of the stories. And that would require a little bit of research, but that would be something fun and different. Yeah. Would we write our own wraparound story or would we take the best, our favorite wraparound story? I think you'd have most of And, I, you know, for me, the favorite wraparound story is like, it'd be hard to beat Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. That's a pretty good wraparound story. I mean, I... I I am kind of partial to the craziness with Burgess Meredith and Torture Garden. I don't know why. But, yeah, that'd be another... Yeah, we'd have to pick our favorite wraparound mm-hmm. stories. I mean, Amicus alone, there's some classics. But we, you got to remember, there's also Dead of Night. Man, I think that, that the dummy story in that would almost have to be included. I, I don't know how you could not do... And we have to limit, I guess... You know how many stories we want to include, but that's a that's a what if for 2019. You know we've come up with this kind of wish list of upcoming episodes, and I think we need to bump that somewhere towards the top. I think that'd be fun. That would be fun. Be fun to do. Exercise our creative juices. Thank you for for planting that seed uh, of uh, ideas. Yeah, and I do just want to mention, Rob, that uh, I'm I'm glad you've resurrected the Aquaman shrine, and I'm and congratulations. I'm I'm thrilled that Aquaman is such a huge success. I need to revisit it. I guess would be the kindest way to say because I did not react too favorably to it. I think Richard liked it more than I did, but I'm I had problems with it too, and I think that's a movie that I I really want to revisit as well. Thinking that maybe you know a, a rewatch will will uh, make it look a little better. I still, you know, I like Suicide Squad, and I yeah, I like Batman versus Superman. There are parts of that movie that work for me. There's things that don't. I have not revisited Justice League since I originally saw it, and I, I don't know that that's going to get that much better for me. It might, but I, Aquaman is one that I'm looking forward to revisiting. I, I think that... Uh, as well as it's doing, and maybe I was a little too harsh on it, but I did like it a little better than you. But Yeah, and I'm thrilled that it's doing well. I mean, there's nothing I want more than those DC movies to succeed. So, um, yeah, just because I didn't like it at the particular time I saw it, I, I want it to be successful. Our next voicemail is from our friend Jonathan Angarola. This first one is just kind of a catch-up. We haven't heard from him in a while. He's been... Well, we'll let him tell you, and then uh, I may have a comment. So here's Jonathan. Hey, guys. It's Jonathan. Uh, Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. 
Um, I missed you guys during the holidays, um, did not get a feedback um, call in. It was a tad busy with the holidays and with the baby, as you well know. Um, but yeah, we had a great Christmas, um, great uh, New Year's. Um, we're now in sleep training with little Stella, so that's a work in progress, but it's going well. It's much better than getting up six times a night, which is what she was doing not that long ago. So I have a few more weeks left in my leave, and then I go back to work at the end of the month, at the end of January. So I did not get to um, the Alive films yet, although I have seen It's Alive, but it's been a very long time. So, But I did listen to the um, very common Christmas episode. It was wonderful, as always, very informative. Um, I did not know a lot about Cone, actually. I also did not know that Bernard Herman scored at least the first film. I'm not sure about the second. But um, I'm going to pull a Stephen Turek here, and I'm going to watch the first film. It's alive. It's been several years. And I'll leave feedback on that. And I'm going to hope to listen to It's Alive 2, which I think came out in 1978. I'll try to get to the third film. I'm not sure that will happen. And I don't know when this feedback will fall. But... um, you know, if, if I'll make it into the upcoming episode or not. But either way, I want to connect with you guys and um, keep up the great work. I'm looking forward to the horror comedy um, episode coming up. I think there's some Bob Hope films in there. Um, I'll probably end up getting to those eventually. Uh, I know I'm about an episode behind with feedback, but what can you do? Baby and all. But you'll be happy to know that I've been exposing um, Stella to lots of horror. Not horror. Um Monster movies, actually. More kid-friendly. King Kong Escapes and one or two camera films. Um, so, um, slowly but surely. Granted, she's only four and a half months, but, you know, I think it's starting to soak in a little bit. So, anyway. Uh, but I hope you guys are good, and I will call back after I watch uh, It's Alive and leave another voicemail. Okay, thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jonathan. We will play what you have to say about It's Alive in a few minutes, but I just want to say that your leave from work must be good for you. You sound fantastic, very rested and happy and energetic. I'm glad you've got that to kind of balance the early days of of having a new baby. So uh, I hope you go back to work all rested and ready to go and can maintain that. Maybe you've banked some extra energy or rest in you that you can, uh, you know, withdraw from uh, in a few months when you go back to work. Well, and thank you for taking the time to call in, too. And uh, we look forward to whenever we get a voicemail from you, even if it's your playing catch-up, don't hesitate to give a call on something we did a couple months ago. Gamera, that's that's a kind of a fun idea. Yeah, you don't want to expose baby Stella to the scary stuff, but Gamera is a fun kaiju introduction. I mean, it's a turtle you know, yeah, there's some stuff that goes on in those, but I don't think anything too scary. Yeah, she can play with her. Didn't she get a stuffed uh, Gamera turtle? Something like that. Yeah, from yeah. Christopher Payne. Although, when you're if you if you've never seen the Gamera movies, just avoid Gamera Super Monster from 1980. It's basically a glorified clip show, and there is a song in there that, heaven forbid baby Stella enjoys because it's it's worse than Barney. If you've ever heard Barney sing, Barney is pleasant compared to that little irritating tune. So that that's my 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 friendly parental warning on that one. Our next voicemail is from another good friend of the podcast, Steve Turek. He's got quite a an in-depth feedback about the movie It's Alive, and uh, we are glad to receive that and play it for you guys now. 
Hi Jeff, hi Rich, this is Steve Turr calling. Um, giving you feedback about those movies It's Alive from 1974 and then later It's Alive 2009. Um, <coughs> I've always known about these It's Alive movies from the 1970s, but I've never seen any of them until I watched the 1974 version. And um, I was glad you guys did this show to force me to have to go watch it, in a sense, because it's been one of those things I've been meaning to do, like I said, never have done, um, kind of always knew the premise, and I just never was really intrigued enough to go see it. So, having said that, and watched it, it was it was very enjoyable, um, it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be, um, John Ryan as Frank Davis did, I think, a, a good job of acting, and, uh, especially when he had his emotional scenes near the end. I mean, I really felt that he was there doing an excellent job. Um, Sharon Farrell as um, Lenore Davis. Um, I enjoyed her. There was a couple times where uh, her acting was just a little bit over the top, in my opinion. But it was, for the most part, she did a very solid job. Uh, the directing by Larry Cohen was, I thought, for this type of picture, low budget. Everything was excellent. It had the um, suspense, the scares, and so on. And the special effects that we saw from Rick Baker, um, I thought were a good job. I thought it was nice that they kept things at a minimum, not showing the um, the creature too much. I think that was the best thing. And, of course, the score, I don't know. I, I know from his commentary how he got Bernard Herman and stuff like that, but still it's kind of surprising how... Bernard Herman pops up in some of these movies that you don't expect him to to do the score for. Um, overall, I would say I have to give this movie a 7 out of 10 Bunny Rabbit Pinata Scares. Um, it's definitely one that anybody that enjoys horror films should watch and see. Uh, an interesting thing also about this being a low-budget film was the amount of police presence that they had with um, officers and there's extras. It really made it seem like the money, the movie had more of a budget because there was police everywhere in all the scenes. Tons and tons of cops, police. It was amazing. Uh, things I don't know if you guys noticed, and the only reason I know about it was because in the commentary, um, Cohen's daughter's Pekingese dog was used in the, and the, some of the scenes where the creature was supposed to be under a blanket. For instance, like when in the crib, when um, Frank Davis is going in there to check in the uh, baby's room to see if the baby is inside the crib and he pulls the blanket up and sees nothing there. And the scene just prior to that, we see something is moving under the blanket. Well, Larry Cohen said it was the Pekingese dog and he was calling the dog and that's what's making the movement from the blanket because he wants something alive underneath there to show that movement. Also, when Frank Davis was carrying the baby in the blanket in the sewer scenes when he was running away and stuff. Again, it was the Pekingese dog, and he pointed in the commentary, he's like, well, if you bought this movie, you deserve to know all this stuff. If you watch closely in that scene, you can see the fur of the dog popping out underneath the blanket. It's pretty obvious. I did not notice it the first time I was watching the movie, but I did notice it, obviously, when he pointed it out during the commentary. So it was something that did high pretty well because you're not like looking for it but now once he says it I'm, i probably always will see it um, but overall i enjoyed it it was like i said it was a very good movie i'm glad you guys decided to do the it's alive movies i've never seen number two or three and um judging by the feedback that you guys gave i probably will just skip those two and just enjoy this first one having said that 
I did watch the remake. It's Alive 2009. Why I did that to myself, I don't know. I didn't think the movie was going to be good. Because a lot of times, as we know, the remakes are usually not as good as the original. And knowing that it was direct-to-video and all that stuff going in ahead of time did not really make me feel like this movie was going to be anything worthwhile. Having said that, I mean, there were some interesting things that they did. Um, I did like the concept of the baby being able to, in my opinion, like change shape when it was either hungry or angry, it would change into its creature form and look like a normal baby prior to that. Because I was thinking going into this movie, how would they not pick up that this was a hideous creature when they were doing sonograms and stuff like that? Um, and this would make this was their way around it. So I thought that was, you know, decent um, writing to help to alleviate that problem. As for the acting, James Murray as Frank Davis was fine. I mean, he wasn't terrible. He wasn't great. He was there, but he was not the the star of the film. The star of the film was I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her first name correctly. By Jew by Joe Phillips as Lenore. And, oh my lord, she was just not that good at all. I mean, I did not enjoy her voice. It sounded like the chalkboard, fingernails on a chalkboard to me. And it was just, it was just not good. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's her voice was bothering me that much. Maybe it was better for you guys. I don't know. Um, the CGI effects, Definitely, I don't know if they were good for back then, but they definitely are not good now. I mean, the CGI is is, is really, really poor, and which which makes the creature effects of the 1974 movie look that much better. And I've always been a firm believer that anytime you can go practical effects, they will almost always hold up better over time than CGI will. And this move these two movies, 1974's It's Alive and 2009 It's Alive did nothing to change my opinion on that. So I still think practical effects are the way to go. Virtually no police. I think there was only one scene where we had like four or more officers and I think that was the hospital scene. After that, we only really ever saw two police officers. So again, both are low budget productions, but it's amazing how Larry Cohen was able to make his look like more, where this other production done in Bulgaria of all places couldn't get people, you know, as extras to show up as police officers or whatever for this to try to make it look like there was more of a police presence. Overall, I gotta give this movie a three out of ten. Poor CGI creature babies. It was just, just really not that good at all. And I do not recommend anybody watch it unless you just want to be a person who does the complete series and go through the whole thing. Um, interesting thing that with the script in this movie, how did the baby creature know how to sabotage the fuse box? I mean, it's only been alive for a week or two. It's hard to say with the timeline how the movie's going. Yet, and I'm sure nobody's ever shown it how to go down to the fuse box and then it death with has electric electrical power to house. But yet somehow the creature knew if it sabotages the fuse box, the power goes out in the whole house. That's just a bit of logic that's hard to, to jump over. And then 
and really, I mean, I mean, it's kind of weird talking about a baby creature, and I'm having trouble with the logic of it being able to take out a fuse box. But hey, it is what it is. Um, comparing the two movies together, the 1970 movie is, like I said, definitely superior in in the creature design, the acting, the directing. Overall, it's just a better movie to see. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to say about these movies, and I'll let you guys decide whether or not to keep this part in. I was when I was watching the first 1974 It's Alive, and of course there was the family friend Charlie, because I didn't know if it was an uncle or I mean if it was like Frank Davis's brother, you know, or if it was a family friend. I ripped up in Wikipedia, they called him a family friend. I could find nothing that says he's nothing but a family friend. But they take their son Chris to him. And, of course, you know, he keeps him there overnight, you know, while the baby goes to be born. And it, and it ends up in the movie that Chris is there for multiple days over this 1974 film. Maybe it's because of the modern viewpoint now when you're looking at something in 2018 compared to something done in 1974. I, I don't think they'd ever make a movie nowadays with Charlie being a single uh, man with a uh, teenage, 10-year-old teenage boy, something like that, and all the, the, the touching he was doing to him, oh, I'll take him to the cabin for fishing. It's it's just, it's it's almost like, I hate to say it, but you look at it now, you're just, I'm just cringing thinking, is he grooming the boy and all that stuff? It's just something that would not work well in modern society, you know, when you're watching it. But I know it was done in 74, things were a lot different back then. But it was just it was just something that was interesting when I first saw it, I was thinking, they could have a lot of little subplots with this movie going on with what was going on between those two characters. Um, so, I'll let you guys decide whether to keep that part in or not. Otherwise, thanks again for doing the It's Alive stuff. Uh, it was an enjoyable podcast, and I'm looking forward to um, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which has, i messaged both of you guys before, is a movie that I have never, ever seen, and I'm looking forward to watch and see what that one's like. I know it's a shocker, but that's just the way it is. All right. You guys have a great day. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, we you know we love those in-depth emails or voicemails like that, and we love your, to hear your thoughts on these films because you look at these movies in a, in a very analytical way. I mean, you're not just watching these movies and and uh, for fun. I mean, you're really looking into them, and I I appreciate and I love to hear your comments. And it's alive, you know, it's a very interesting trilogy, to say the least. And I love the fact that you've included uh, a voicemail from your son, Ben. Ben, who is definitely from a different generation than us, meaning we're getting older. It's nice to hear the younger generation's opinions. And uh, you'll hear that, that Ben watched Halloween and... It's Alive back-to-back, and some pretty interesting thoughts on what was scary and what wasn't from a uh, someone from a younger generation's perspective. So let's take a listen to that voicemail. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Rich. This is Steve Turk again, and I brought you a special person to get feedback about It's Alive, my son, Ben. And he's going to give us a perspective that's different than the rest of us because, you know, we're all in our 50s and he's 18. And he saw It's Alive for the first time a couple days after I did. So I'm going to pass the mic over to him and let him give you guys a little bit of his um, opinions of the film. Here, passing it to Ben. Hi guys, this is Ben, here to share a couple thoughts about It's Alive. 
Um, I watched the 1974 version a couple days after I watched uh, Halloween from 1978. And genuinely, I was more scared of It's Alive than Halloween, mostly because of the schoolhouse scene with Frank Davis in the schoolhouse classroom of his son and the baby monster being a few feet away and just the whole time you think he's going to get him. And that kind of started the feeling of terror for the whole rest of the movie. I did enjoy that there was almost no screen time of the monster, which left almost everything it did up to the imagination. I think that is the main difference between Halloween and this one. Even though you don't see Michael Myers almost at all in Halloween, you do see like full body shots of him, whereas you don't see a full body shot of the monster at all. Like I said, I genuinely enjoyed this movie. I thought it was very suspenseful, and I enjoyed the acting of John Ryan and Sharon Farrell as Frank Davis and Lenore Davis, and I also enjoyed James Dixon as Lieutenant Perkins. I thought he was rather cool. I hope that you guys have a happy holidays. So that was one of the things I wanted to say, which I thought was interesting with Ben's perspective, is a lot of us look at films differently we were talking about it because when i grew up watching halloween for 1978 i saw it when i was about 10 or 11 years old and to me it was one of it still is one of the scariest movies and we're watching it together for the first time like he said just a little bit before he saw it's alive and the whole time ben's like this isn't scary this doesn't scare me and i think it brings back to the, the, the different generations how different movies affect them um, if you think about a 1931 when Dracula and Frankenstein came out, it generally was scary and horrific to the population that was watching it at that time. Where pretty much now, unless you're re- relatively young, uh, most people are not scared or horrified by Frankenstein or Dracula like they were back in 1931. They're looking at it differently. And I think that's with the generation nowadays when they look at these movies that came out in the 70s that like you, like Jeff and Rich and I all grew up watching when we were younger and scared us. To them, it's a lot different, and I think it's because societal changes and things like that. And I think it brings an interesting discussion about how a lot of these movies change um, over time. And we might not see it because we're looking at it still with that 10, 11-year-old eyes where they're looking at it fresh for the first time. And I think that just brings an interesting perspective. All right? So maybe it's something you and um, Rich can discuss down the road. Maybe you can look at some films and maybe get people from different age groups to look at those films at the same time and see what the perspectives are from each group. It would be, it would be something different. All right. Again, like Ben said, I hope you guys have a great Christmas. And um, we'll both be watching Santa Claus Conquers the Martians for the first time. And we'll give you feedback on that down the road from our two different generations. See you guys later. Bye. Thank you again, Steve and Ben. Thank you. Uh, I, I've said it a hundred times. I'll just continue to say it. I am just amazed your father has raised you right that you're you're watching these movies and you can put together such well considered opinions and thoughts and unique. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Your father 
he was very diplomatic, you know, in basically calling us out for our ages and being old men or or whatever. So, you know, he, he's pretty smooth, that guy is. You guys are right. We're, we're of a different generation, but we're all monster kids at heart. Glad glad that you're one of us, man. Thank you. Yeah, no matter how much older I get and I'm embracing being uh, past the age of 50 now, I, I used to be terrified of that. Now I'm really kind of embracing it. I still have the mentality of a 12-year-old, and I'm going to be 80 or 90 years old in a nursing home somewhere. I'm still going to be watching cartoons on Saturday mornings, so that's never going to change. That's who I am, and, and I'm not going to change. Let's wrap up feedback then with voicemail. Another one from Jonathan where he did, in fact, watch It's Alive and gives also his well-considered, thought-out opinions about that movie. Gentlemen, it's Jonathan. Okay, so I just finished watching It's Alive, the first one. And I do have a few notes. I really, actually, no, I wouldn't say I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, I think um, it had some problems. Uh, but overall, it was a good little chiller. Um, and um, there were there were quite a few scenes that I hadn't remembered. And um, I know it had been some years, but um, there were actually whole scenes that I had forgotten about. Um, but yeah, I, first of all, um, this killer baby, oh my God, <laughs> this is, this, this baby could be an assassin, could be part of the, uh, deadly viper assassin squad from a Tarantino movie or something because killer with <laughs> such efficiency, um, you know, knocks off five, six people in the, in the uh, delivery room and it just goes from there. A pretty horrifying, uh, moment for, Particularly when uh, the husband um, comes in and finds his wife, you know, so, um, uh, you know, uh, distraught and with this carnage all around her and she's completely helpless and tied down. I thought that was pretty disturbing, considering my wife just had a baby about four and a half months ago. Um, but, um, yes, yeah, so uh, the creature design by Rick Baker I thought was... was I think they were smart. I think you guys said this in your episode to keep it um, kind of under wraps or in the, in the shadow most of the time. Um, so I thought that was good. A um, few awkward moments. Uh, one that stands out is the radio announcement on the on the um, soon after the killings in the hospital and the baby's loose and they're reporting it on the radio and naming the husband and wife and. I'm not sure that would happen even in the 1970s, so that was a little awkward. I also thought the conversation between Frank and his boss, his boss in the PR firm, was kind of awkward. I can't tell if it was a great bit of screenwriting and had some passive-aggressive awkwardness that may may have been, you know, that may be true to life, or it was just um, they didn't know how to play that scene, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Um the um I thought the cries of the baby were extremely grating, uh, and pretty effective, although I think it would have been even creepier if the creature sounded more like an infant. Maybe not exactly like a traditional infant, but a little more like a baby. Baby baby. I thought that would be even creepier. But um anyway, uh husband and wife, um, I think were uh played by John Ryan and Sharon Farrell were really were well done. I think it was pretty heartbreaking watching um, Lenore, the wife, trying to keep things together and and to to appeal to um, her husband's sense of or 
lost sense of fatherhood for this uh, creature uh, that was clearly their their child. Um, and John Ryan was great as well. He's a good character actor. He could he captured that sense of uh, this taut, this extreme tension that Frank was feeling. The entire film was very effective. Um, and I thought the rest of the cast was pretty solid as well. Um, oh, the canals at the end of the film. Um, are those, I think those are those famous canals we've seen in other films that have taken place in Los Angeles. The one that jumps out at me, most of the scenes at the, are these scenes from them. One of my favorite films of the 1950s. My favorite giant bug movie. Um, great B movie. Uh, or really an A picture. Well, I won't get into all that, but a great film. And those canals at the end, I think these are supposed to be the same canals. I think they take place in the same area, but maybe you guys could um, confirm that. So, And speaking of which, I thought those scenes were very effective at the end. The chase is in the tunnel. He finds the baby, uh, tries to save it. Um, I thought that was very effective. I thought the flashing lights of the police cars that would light periodically, intermittently light up um uh, highlight shots of the creature very quickly. I thought that was very effective. Again, not showing too much. Um, and uh, I, I also love those old police cars from back in the 70s with the widely set sirens. Reminds me of films, um, you know, of that of that period, which I love, 1970s films. Um, I enjoyed the way the venal doctor bought it in the end as Frank... Um, um, throws uh, his child um, for one last kill of <laughs> the doctor. I thought that was amazing. I don't think it was supposed to be funny, but I appreciated it. Um, Bernard Herman, great score. Um, you know, obviously he's done everything from Hitchcock to Harryhausen to Citizen Kane, you name it, and Taxi Driver. And parts of this score definitely reminded me of Taxi Driver, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, last thing is Larry Cohn, the director... Um, I don't think I've seen many of his films, but I, one of his films is on my list, uh, on my 2C list, which is God Told Me To. This is an intriguing premise, and I've seen it pop up on several must-see horror film uh, lists in the past, So, uh, especially if you're looking for something a little different and a little quirky. So I am interested in seeing that. I don't know if you guys have seen it before. Uh, I'd be curious to know. So anyway, that's my thoughts about It's Alive. I think Stella's going to wake up from her nap any minute now, so I'm going to run. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. And, you know, there are a lot of fun moments uh, in, in It's Alive. You got great music. You've got some quirkiness. I love where the baby got thrown on the bad guy. I mean, that it's, you know, it, it yeah, you can't help but laugh. It's intended to be funny. It wasn't intended to be scary, I think, when uh, when you see crazy moments like that. If you've seen the documentary King Cohen, I just watched it. It's on Shudder. Uh, so if you have that service, definitely check it out. I don't think that there's any other movies on there right now other than Q, uh, which is a movie I've, I kind of really want to see that one. I think I saw it a gazillion years ago. I don't remember anything about it, but it does have Michael Moriarty in it, which Oops. is not necessarily a, uh, a winning recommendation for me, but uh, it's got David Carradine in it too. So, And I, I really want to watch that movie because knowing that a lot of the crowd scenes were actually real crowd scenes because the way that they shot that and actual gunfire but didn't bother to tell anybody that they were shooting guns and um yeah so if you've king cohen is a great documentary to see if you watch the it's alive trilogy catch that documentary and you can really see larry cohen is a unique guy 
I don't think he gets enough recognition. If you ever have the opportunity to see him at a convention, uh, I think you definitely take the time and talk to him because he seems very much like a real guy. Quirky, but definitely uh, in- enjoys what he does, and I think that says a lot. Yeah, and that documentary talks a lot about, lot about his guerrilla style of filmmaking and the what you described about the crowd and not knowing they were filming. He just It's full of stories like that. It, it is a good watch. So I know all of you are sitting out there, you're, you're pulling your hair out, screaming, how did those people leave voicemails? How, how can I leave a voicemail and feedback? Well, it's very easy. You simply dial 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Talk to your heart's content. There is a three-minute limit, but we can splice your messages together. Don't feel like you have to, to rush. Lord knows Steve Turek doesn't rush. So, uh, <laughs> uh, just kidding, Steve. We love you. Let's move on to new business in our movies. Let's listen to a trailer for our first movie and come back and talk about The Cat and the Canary. Five, six. The warning has come again. Nothing can stop it. You want to go first? Yeah. No, certainly not. Ladies always go first. Oh. Nice. Watch that step. Watch it. It's got me. It's got my hands. It's got my... It's got... Cheese. It's this hand. It's this. It's... Oh. 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 Hurry up. I feel like a mouse. Get, get me out of this. that the air hereinafter named should prove to be of unsound mind, or if said air should become insane or should meet death within a month of inheriting, then my estate is to be given to the person whose name is contained in envelope number two. Well, that will is practically an invitation to commit murder. I remember a situation almost like this in an old play called The, the Fatal Hour, or She Should Have Known Better. At the end of the second act, the leading man takes the heroine in his arms and, and he kisses her. And then, filled with new courage, he starts out after the villain. And, uh, of course, comes back in the third act. Oh, sure. Uh, no. As a matter of fact, in the third act, he's found dead in the bathtub. Why, there's nothing. Hey, wait a minute. This is loose. Hey, what's this? Listen, baby, don't be surprised if we discover an old skeleton in here. Well? Joyce! Joyce! 
In the Louisiana bayous, the family of millionaire Cyrus Norman gathers for the reading of his will. When an unusual clause stipulates that the person who inherits his fortune, Joyce Norman, must remain sane for 30 days, a mysterious second heir may be trying to drive her crazy, or even kill her. Luckily, wisecracking cousin Wally Campbell is nearby to protect her in the old dark house. Cat and the Canary from 1939 is what we're going to start things off with. And before we dive into the movie proper, I want to take a look back at what was going on in 1939. That's a year we hadn't done yet before. And uh, there was certainly a lot of stuff happening in the world uh, in 1939, both politically as well as at the uh, at the box office. There was a lot of big movies released in 1939. On the home front, you could buy four cans of Campbell's tomato soup for 25 cents. You could buy a new car for $700. You could buy gasoline for 10 cents a gallon. On a more serious front, it was the start of World War II. Uh, Germany invaded Poland. And this resulted in the, uh, the UK, France, and Australia declaring war on Germany. And the United States was neutral. Meanwhile, though, there was the Manhattan Project, which resulted in the creation of an advisory committee on uranium. That happened on October 21st, 1939. And, of course, the Manhattan Project would basically be the uh, the end result of the Manhattan Project would be the end of World War II. You had the World's Fair opening in New York. You had Lou Gehrig retiring from baseball on July 4th after being diagnosed with ALS, and he would die just two years later. Regular television broadcasts begin in the United States. Now, most people didn't have televisions for about another decade, but they did start regular broadcast in, in New York, I believe, in 1939. Meanwhile, over in the UK, the BBC stopped their broadcasting. They actually were already doing television broadcasting earlier than we were, but because of World War II, they stopped and did not resume until 1946. FDR was the President of the United States, Neville Chamberlain, no relation, was Prime <laughs> Minister of the UK, and yes, our good friend Adolf Hitler was Chancellor of Germany. On the box office, on a happier front, we have Gone with the Wind, we had The Wizard of Oz, we had Stagecoach, Of Mice and Men, Wuthering Heights, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, I believe Goodbye Mr. Chips came out that year too, and I think I'm probably missing some other big ones. There was a ton of big blockbusters in 1939. Not as much, though, on the horror front. Horror movies were just starting. That cycle of horror movies was starting to kick back in. We had Son of Frankenstein. We had The Man They Could Not Hang. We had Tower of London, all three of which starred Boris Karloff. We had The Return of Dr. X with Humphrey Bogart. That's a classic. We had The Gorilla, which uh, was with Bela Lugosi, as well as Dark Eyes of London, which was with Bela Lugosi. And uh, I probably should have said this before we dived into the movies, but music, we had uh, Moonlight Serenade by Glenn Miller and Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland. Uh, That's what was happening in 1939. Now, at the box office, 1939, there was also a movie that was definitely a horror comedy, but it was actually pops up on when you do like, you know, top horror movies of 1939. It does list, this is a movie that's listed on those categories, and it's Cat and the Canary, with Bob Hope. And this was actually a remake, uh, a film that actually had been made, I believe, five times. Uh, 
between 1927 and 1979, but I don't believe has been remade since. It is the proverbial old dark house type movie based on a 1922 play by John Willard and was first made into a movie in 1927. That silent version still exists and it is definitely a classic. I believe it's public domain, so it's pretty easy to find a copy of that film. Unfortunately, the 1930 remake, which is called The Cat Creeps, is impossible to find because it is lost. There is a snippet from that movie that exists in like a, I think it's a one-reeler, like newsreel uh, hype from the studio, but other than that, the entire movie is lost, and that's a movie that I'd love to that I'd love for it to pop up someday, but I think so much time has passed. The likelihood is, is that movie either... I think there's another movie from the 40s called The Cat Creeps, which is not... There's no relation between the movies. And it could very well be that people might have even thrown away a 1930 copy thinking that it was the uh, 1940s version. I know that there's... Uh, that's happened before with... Is this a Doctor Who reference? <laughs> Doctor Who mentioned... Some of the lost episodes of Doctor Who, there are some titles that are similar, and there's a thought that certain episodes might have been thrown away because they were thought to be actually another. There's like um, a story called The Invasion and another one called The Invasion of the Dinosaurs, but the first episode of The Invasion of the Dinosaurs was called The Invasion, so as not to give away that dinosaurs are the big reveal at the end. And the thought is, is that that episode, which did not exist in color for a very long time, was actually thrown away by the BBC because they thought they already had it in their library, when in fact they were two different episodes. So I've, I've heard that theory with, with movies as well, that some movies have similar titles, that some of the lost movies might have been thrown away because they were thought to exist in, in the library already. Hmm. That might be the case with the Cat Creeps. Uh, there was also a Spanish version that very same year, which translates to The Will of the Dead Man. Uh, then, of course, there's this version in 1939, a 1961 Swedish television version, and then finally the 1979 remake with Honor Blackman of the Avengers fame, and she was in Goldfinger. And again, that's the last time that there's been a remake. So this version in 1939 and the 1927 version are the two most famous. And I think of the two, and it's been a while since I've seen the 27 version, but I think the 27 version is is probably the the better of the two because it's definitely, it's more serious. I mean, it's, it, it's it, there's some funny moments in it, but it's not a straightforward comedy, whereas Cat in the Canary is more of a comedy with some old Dark House elements thrown in. But I would say even the comedy is kind of underplayed in this movie. And, and we'll talk about... There's definitely some problems with this with this film. What did you think of, of Cat and the Canary? Well, uh, it suffered for me because I had seen the original, you know, within the last year or so. And I can't help but compare. And there's sort of a different tone to it. So, you know, I don't know how fair it is to compare, but... You just made me think of something. If this is more of a comedy, it's focusing on the comedic elements. Well, the idea of a family going home 
for the reading of the will to see what they inherited and, you know, maybe competition among them to see if they're going to be the the ones that inherit. That's that's a common subject that's been in many movies and many comedies. And it seems like the comedy comes from those characters, the members of the family. Right. You've got a star like Bob Hope. Of course, they're going to focus on him and and his shtick and mine the comedy from that so i think the story just suffers from sort of disregarding those other characters there are scenes in the original focusing on the different characters and in their bedrooms and what's happening and you get none of that here it's you know strictly hope and um the the woman joyce that inherits and i'm drawing a blank on who was the actress for her but um, okay thank you uh so I mean, I enjoyed it. It wasn't horrible, but if I had not seen the original, I wonder if I would have liked it more. You know, Bob Hope, this was at the the earlier part of his career. I mean, he had been uh, doing movies for about five years. Uh, he made his debut in 1934 in a two-railer called Going Spanish, which I actually just saw that the other night. Carl and I have been working our way through the road movies, the Bob Hope, Bing Crosby uh, road movies, and... At the end, the version I have, or the copy I have of their last movie, The Road to Hong Kong, was recorded off of Turner Classic Movies many years ago, and they threw in a one-reel version of Going Spanish. It was bizarre. I forget the title. It was it was a re-release from like 41, 42. The original was a two-reel musical, and this was a one-reel version with all the music parts taken out. And very, very sloppily taken out. And you got a very disjointed mess. And and, uh, and then nonetheless, that was Bob Hope's debut in 34. So by 39, this, you know, he had done a few films, certainly, and, and uh, leaned towards the more musical version. I think he had been on the radio a little bit, but this was really the start of his moving to, like, the next level. I mean, he was well-known, but now this movie was, was one of his first big starring roles because I don't think that he did very many big films before this I I could be wrong I'm going to have to pull up IMDB to confirm that but this was kind of an opportunity for for him to I guess again like make it big so to speak make it to the next level and I think on on that at the time it succeeded it was well received in the box office however you know, looking at the movie now with with modern eyes, and as much as I like Bob Hope, and this is my first time watching Cat in the Canary, I don't know. It it it, it to me it seemed a bit disjointed. It was about seventy two minutes long, and it seemed a bit uneven. And it seemed, I don't know, it seemed kind of rushed at the end, and and it seemed like it just it built up a lot of of hype and darkness and and. Then some of the big reveals at the end seem to come out of left field. And I'm like, why? And how did that happen? And there just wasn't much explanation. And then the movie ends. Um, yeah, I think they they left out important parts of the story. I mean, the, the whole you know twist of it is that second person that will inherit if anything happens to the first. But they don't play it up very much. I remember in the first one, that was such... That was, I guess that was the focus. And again, you're just shifting the focus with the comedy, uh, you know, to Bob Hope and his personality. I do want to mention that this is, gosh, probably the first Bob Hope movie I've seen. I've 
seen some of his later ones that he did in the 70s and I think maybe he did he did some with Lucille Ball, didn't he? In the like he later did late late sixties, early seventies. Okay, so yeah. I think I've seen some of those. So I didn't really know, you know, what to expect. It's not he's not slapstick. It's it, it and you can tell me if I'm wrong because you've seen more than me. But it's more he's the more wisecracking, fast talker, you know, cracking jokes. There's a, a time when he's takes place in the bayous of Louisiana and they have to row a boat to get to the mansion and Bob makes a joke about uh, the alligators arriving and then he goes, oh, I mean errors. So it's fast wordplay like that. That's that the comedy comes from. And a lot of that doesn't really make me laugh. It's, I guess, clever and humorous. Not so bad to be annoying, but just not, that's not the kind of thing. It's not smart enough really to make me laugh like an all-out comedy, but it's just kind of, oh, that's yeah. cute. Yeah, Bob Hope is an acquired taste, and I like Bob Hope, but I don't know that I've ever really watched a lot of Bob Hope solo movies, other than the couple that we're going to be talking about here. I mean, movies like, the you know, Son of Pale Face and, and like those movies with Lucille Ball. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, it's definitely not slapstick. Uh, it's it's much more of a, of a verbal delivery. And, and Bob Hope... I think functions better when he's he's got a partner, and I think that's why the the Bing Crosby Bob Hope Road movies work so well because they they just go together, you know. They 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 just it's a total complete fit, and even the Road to Hong Kong, which came you know some twenty two years after the first film, and was not it was not as good as as its predecessors. It came nine years after the previous film, Road to Bali. They were older, and films had changed. They still worked really well together in that, and a lot of it was the verbal banter between Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, and a lot of it was ad lib. And I think that's where that's where he he works best. I think when you when you put him into like a lead role, very relies very heavily on that banter, and it's sometimes it's going to work, and it's not, or it's not going to work. I think it works much better in the Ghostbreakers than it works here. And it may be that they just, maybe it was the material, maybe it was the the script. I mean, it's it's based on a stage play, which of course is going to limit you a little bit. So you've got to have a good, you know, writer adapting it for the screen so it doesn't come across stagey. Walter DeLeon and, and Lynn Starling were the, uh, the writers and Walter DeLeon was the writer of the Ghostbreakers in 1940. So... And I think he did. I think he did a great job with that with that script. I think that script works. This one is, I think, is just problematic. And maybe it was because he was adapting the the stage play and, and probably trying to adapt elements from the twenty seven film. Maybe that hindered it a little bit. And uh, what you said about his relationship with Crosby and uh, that makes me think. I don't know. I mean, I suppose they're wanting it to be the romantic, you know, fireworks between him and Paulette Goddard but I don't believe in the 27 there was really a romance subplot and so now you're taking that story and making that the focus so I think that dilutes it and plus I don't don't really see Bob Hope as a romantic meeting no. man <laughs> no and that's and that's actually the part of the road movies that's funny is that he never gets the girl 
I mean, it, Bing Crosby's always getting the girl, and, and uh, even when it looked, and, and Dorothy Lamore is always the girl, right, in those movies, and uh, he just he never gets never gets the gal. I think even in Road to Hong Kong, Joan Collins took over the 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 female role, the the lead role, and I think in the end, I think it was still still Bing even after all those years. So and that was just kind of the the shtick that the two of them had. But it was funny because again, you know, Bing Crosby, like Bob Hope, wasn't necessarily a dashing you know leading man type, but Bing could sing. You know, and he had the voice, and Bob was always kind of the the more comedic of the two, and so the women were always attracted to Bing's voice, as he could just you know he was the crooner and just sing a song, and they would, oh you know they would just melt. Oh, and when we talk about the Ghostbreakers, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself because it actually kind of works there, but that's because the story that's part of the story, and it's more organic that this radio announcer, newsman, you know, the situation he gets in with the woman is more, I don't know if I say believable, but it's just more organic and natural. In this, you know, they're cousins, and that always makes me wonder, well, how close the cousins are they? Kissing cousins, I guess. I think there was, yeah, there was definitely chemistry between Bob Hopeman and Paulette Goddard in in The Ghostbreakers. I I didn't feel it in this movie, and I think, again... I'm going to blame it on the script. I don't think the script allowed for there to be to be chemistry, and I think just the way that the movie flows and, and Ghostbreakers, the plot flows much better than than it does here. In talking about you know where this was at in, in in Bob Hope's filmography, it was early on. I mean, like I said, he started in '34, but what he was doing was a lot of of uh, two reel shorts, musical shorts, comedy shorts, and then. Uh, his first motion picture was the big broadcast of 1938. Just the previous year, he had made his his, his feature film debut. That's a straightforward comedy. It's and it's kind of an ensemble piece, but it's uh, W. C. Fields is is the big comedic uh, person in that one. And if I remember correctly, I think that's the movie where he debuts the song "Thanks for the Memories," and then he did a movie in 1938 called "Thanks for the Memory." You know, then the following year he does Cat in the Canary, and then that's where, then that leads to the very next film he did after this was The Road to Singapore, which kicked off the road movies, and then the following movie was The Ghostbreakers. So the, the there's a succession of three films that Cat in the Canary, successful at the time, gets him on the map. That leads to a, a big deal with the road to Singapore, Singapore, pairing him up with Bing Crosby, who was huge as a singer in 1940, and then leads to then the Ghostbreakers, which, as we'll talk about, is is a better film, and then that just kind of kicked off a, a golden period for for Bob Hope, where you know I think really, you know, the 40s and 50s between his radio shows and and his films. He he was having a, a, a lot of a lot of success, and then by the time you get in the '60s and '70s, and he's then he starts transitioning to his television specials. And by the time that a lot of people, you know, will only remember the Bob Hope television specials, which were they were bad because Bob Hope was reading a teleprompter a lot. They're really not that good when it comes to variety specials, but. Some people may disagree with me, but I was never a fan of those. I think that they were very painfully scripted. I think, you know, Bob Hope's best work 
admittedly, was probably his USO work, which would kick in with World War II. And he could sing, but he's never going to have a breakaway hit. It was the the movies that he did in the USO work is what made him uh, the most successful. And Cat in the Canary was... It, it opened some doors for him. He had had a couple of, of, of movies, but this was the one that, that opened doors and kind of elevated him to the next level. Even though by today's standards, like I said, it's... it's uh, Problematic. It's got some problems at the time. It was well received. So, hmm. well, I, do you have anything else on this? I really don't have much else to say about it. I, I, I'd, I'd rather some, get in talk about the Ghostbreakers. Yeah, but. I've got some trivia. I'll okay. just throw out there yeah. a little bit. Um, so, um, Paulette Goddard plays Joyce Norman, the the female lead. She does a better job, as we said in Ghostbreakers. But this was also this wasn't a big break for her. She had actually done a couple of other things and the the biggest of which was modern times 1936 charlie chaplin um she was the the female lead in that movie and modern times is considered the last of the traditional silent films charlie chaplin made two films city lights in 1931 and modern times in 1936 where he kind of refused to adapt to sound and was continuing to make silent films with special effects, sound, and, and of course he was doing his own musical score, but there was no talking. Modern Times put her on the map. It kind of led to, to a period of great success for her. And with uh, uh, The Great Dictator coming in, in 1940, I believe it was in, I believe it was Cat in the Canary, where she was not one of the first choices for this film. She was supposed to be doing The Great Dictator with Charlie Chaplin, but because of some delays in production, uh, she became available, and the other two actresses that they had kind of thought might work for the movie, uh, and I think one of them was uh, Martha Ray, decided that the, the uh, director, Elliot Nugent, just said, no, it's just not going to work. Paulette Goddard became available, and they snatched her up right away uh, while Charlie Chaplin was continuing to fine-tune The Great Dictator, which didn't get filmed until the following year. Elliot Nugent, of course, as I said, is the director. And he's an actor, too. Here's an interesting thing. He was he acted in The Unholy Three, the 1930 version with Lon Chaney Sr. He also directed My Favorite Brunette, which is a 1947 comedy noir uh, that I also just saw in the last few weeks with Bob Hope. Definitely inspired by film noir movies. That movie... I had no idea of knowing this until I saw this, that his uh, Bob Hope's co-stars were Peter Lorre and Lon Chaney Jr. Peter Lorre plays traditional bad guy in that, where Lon Chaney Jr. is kind of playing the dumb handyman type character, uh, the big strong man. He can like bend pipes and bars and stuff. <laughs> uh, he's, he's got the mind of a child. Other other cast members in this one have horror connections. Uh, the character of Miss Lou was played by Gail Sondergaard. Of course, she starred in the 1941 version of The Black Cat. She was in Sherlock Holmes and the Spider-Woman, The Climax, and The Spider-Woman Strikes Back, which we covered on our Rondo Hatton episode. And she was also in an episode of Night Gallery in the 1970s called Mm -hmm. The Dark Boy. And uh, George Zuko played Crosby the Lawyer. Gosh, he's a great character actor. Uh, Charlie Chan in Honolulu. He was Professor Moriarty in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes opposite Basil Rathbone. He was in uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939. He was in The Mummy's Hand, 
Dark Streets of Cairo, The Monster and the Girl, which we were talking about. He was in Voodoo Man, House of Frankenstein, so a lot of other films. So uh, a well-known and very familiar face there, too. So probably more fun trivia facts about this movie than the movie itself. I think we're in agreement. This movie, of the three movies, Cat in the Canary was my least favorite, and I was a little disappointed. I was expecting a little bit more with it, considering that this was a Bob Hope film, and in, of course the title, and I thought it might be a little more entertaining. Uh, ultimately, I was I was a little disappointed. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't horrible, but... No, it, no. It, Not as it, fun as I thought it was going to be. Right, right. Let's move on then. Uh, let's hear the trailer for our next movie, and I think we'll be a little more eager to talk about it. And we'll be right back. Ghostbreakers Incorporated. You make them, we shake them. Bob Hope speaking. Yes, Paulette Goddard's a partner in this firm. What? You want me to send her around? <laughs> Listen, if I could tell Paulette what to do, I wouldn't send her to your house. Sucker. You know, I never knew there were so many ghosts roaming around loose until Paulette and I got into the Ghostbreakers. Believe me, the cat in the canary was a pink tea compared to this picture. It all starts on one terrible night. Basil Rathbone must be giving a party. That's the night that Paulette inherits a ghostly ancient castle off the ghost, I mean the coast of Cuba. The place is filled with mummies and spooks that walk at midnight. There are murders and death warnings planned to frighten Paulette and me, but we ain't frightened. I'll match you to see who faints first. Sound like Miss Carter's voice. Ah, that's what they're trying to make us believe. such good ghost breakers is that we don't believe in ghosts. (laughs) Or do I? As Mary Carter prepares to take a boat to Cuba to visit the plantation and mansion she inherited, she becomes entangled in a web of mystery involving the mob and threats to her safety. Luckily, wisecracking radio reporter Larry Lawrence is nearby to protect her in the old dark house. Welcome back. This was my favorite of the three movies. You know, we sort of set out to do horror comedies, and we've already kind of said these really aren't horror comedies. They're certainly not scary or made to scare. This comes the closest, though, and I think that's one reason that it is my favorite. I mean, it's not scary, but it's very atmospheric. Yes. When they get to the castle and they film it, to sort of give you some little jumps here and there. The music is fantastic. It's creepy. 
I I would call this a horror comedy, where the other two I would say are just are strictly comedies. Oh, I absolutely agree. The the atmosphere it uh, it's just dripping atmosphere. I think Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard have a lot more chemistry yes. in this film. Uh, I think Bob Hope's character of Larry Lawrence is much better. I, I like Paulette Goddard's uh, portrayal of Mary Carter, and it just seems to work well. And you're also dealing, I think, with a much better script. This was also based on a play called The Ghost Breaker by Paul Dickey and Charles W. Goddard. And uh, it had actually been filmed twice before. It was filmed as a silent uh, movie in 1914 and 1922. And sadly, both of those versions are lost. So this and Scared Stiff, which is a remake, spoiler alert... (laughs) the the uh, second and, or the third and fourth versions of uh, the uh, adaptation of that play, I you know without seeing the silent films I can't say that those you know better or worse but I think it would be hard pressed to be better than the Ghost Breakers. Looking at the cast of those movies, there's there's not any familiar names. So for me at least when I glanced at it, this one Bob Hope was hitting his stride in 1940. And I think it was just a combination of things as a as an actor, as an entertainer. Uh, I mean, he came from the days of vaudeville, but this was a movie that everything seemed to click. And uh, was really, 1940 onward, things were looking great for Bob Hope. And, and this movie has to play a part. Cat in the Canary may have elevated him, but 1940 was the year where he kind of solidified his, uh, his status in Hollywood. I will say, though, that... Well, this is a, on a grander scale. I mean, it's not just confined to the to a mansion. In fact, it's 54 minutes before they even get to that spooky castle. So the story, it's... Uh, they don't really play it like slapstick, but there's a lot of qualities, you know. There's uh, getting locked in a trunk and getting loaded on a boat and things like that that are uh, complicate the story and they make it more... I think more entertaining. There's more substance to it than was played out in The Cat and the Canary, I believe. Again, I mean, just a much more solidified script. I think that with Cat and the Canary running, I think, 72 minutes long, I don't know what the length of this one, but I think it was, was it like 75 minutes to 90 minutes? I, I say, think it was like 95. Yeah, it was it, being a longer film, I think that they had an opportunity. I think they just had more to work with. An hour and 25 minutes. Oh. Uh, is what it pulled up, which... um, So you're looking at basically about 15 minutes longer than Cat in the Canary. And at that time period, hour and 25 minutes was a solid running time. And and they they utilize all all 85 minutes because there's... I don't think that there's really any wasted moments in this movie. You just got a lot going on. I mean, the cast... uh, You got some familiar cast, which I think enhanced the movie. Richard Carlson as Jeff Montgomery... Very young Richard Carlson. Yeah, I almost didn't recognize him. I, I knew he was in it, and I was, oh, I oh, I didn't know, and I saw in the credits, and I'm like, oh, Richard Carlson, and then I wasn't real sure who it was when he appeared. And, and in case you're listening to this and don't know who Richard Carlson is, shame on you. Of course, Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1954. It came from Outer Space, 1953, and maybe another other movie or two. I mean, he... Uh, well-known in 1950s sci-fi and horror classic. Uh, We've talked about him before on this podcast, and I'm sure we'll talk about him again. And then Willie Best playing Larry Lawrence's servant, Alex. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. So 
this time period, movies in the 1930s and 1940s, you're going to find that there are are African American servants, and that's just kind of the nature of, of our society at that time period. And depending on the movie, uh, sometimes they're portrayed very serious. Sometimes they're portrayed more comedically. And some of these portrayals age well. Some of them don't. Thinking about Gone with the Wind in 1939, there's characters in that that have not aged well and can be hard for modern audiences. You know, there was a time period where Gone with the Wind was shown every single year on television even now, I don't think Turner Classic Movies, I think they've really pulled back on their screenings because there's there's definitely, you know, some, some topics covered in that film that today's audiences have problems with. With, you know, actors like Manton Moreland and Willie Best, uh, and to a much lesser degree, Step and Fetch It, they were always playing the kind of the comedic foil, the, the servants, what have you. But I think, for me personally... Like Manton Moreland in, in this film, Willie Best, yes, they're there for comedic purposes, but they're they're treated with respect in these movies. They're not used uh, as buffoons or as cartoonish characters. I think an actor like Stepan Fetchett, unfortunately, was never used seriously. Yeah, there's things that these actors do, Manton Moreland and Willie Best will do in these films, that might be a little cringeworthy at times, but not not much. I mean, they're they're comedic uh, personas, much like Rochester on the Jack Benny show, and their parts could easily have been played by you know a white actor, uh, could have been played by an Asian actor, and could have been played by Jerry Lewis. Could have been played exactly, and you know the things that they do, no matter the color of the skin, the actor playing them. They're playing a goofy role at times. But in this particular portrayal, I mean, Alex is not portrayed overly goofy. I mean, he's he's got his funny moments. He's certainly scared of certain things. But not in, and I don't think personally, I don't think in, in a way that crosses the, the racial sensitivity barriers. You, you, you know, a lot of times people just jump to conclusions. Oh my gosh, there's a African-American, you know, a servant and that's wrong. No, that's a reflection of the time period. It's how are they portrayed. This is not like Gone with the Wind, where there's definitely some very hard-to-watch things in that. This isn't like um, Holiday Inn with Bing Crosby, where you're, you're doing an Abraham Lincoln birthday routine that is, as much as I adore that movie and as much as I love Bing Crosby, that segment is hard to watch. I think Willie Best was fun to watch in this film, and I didn't I didn't see his portrayal being racially insensitive. I know that it's been some people have said that about this movie and about this role. I would respectfully disagree. I I'm very much in tune with that in watching films. I know, in my opinion, I think when it's being done, um, and it's hard to watch, and I I don't I didn't get that vibe here at all. Personally. Me either. I didn't think it was offensive at all. He was an integral part of the story. He had. You know, he wasn't just the sidekick. He wasn't this there for comedy relief. He advanced the story with the part he played in it, and I, I thought it was fine. And, and Willie Best, of course, is a um, an actor again, like Manton Moreland. Uh, they were, I believe, it was Willie Best. I think he did some Charlie Chan films where he, Manton Moreland did quite a few films where he was playing. Uh, was it Birmingham Brown? I think that is his uh, servant. 
when Manton Moreland was unavailable, Willie Best played in a couple films as Chattanooga Brown, Will, Birmingham's, you know, um, cousin or something like that. I don't know. I You know, a lot of people have problems with the Charlie Chan films. Again, you've got a Caucasian actor playing an Asian detective. And I get it, and I understand it, and I think you have to look at the time that the films were made. And I have never had a problem with Manton Moreland's portrayal in those films or Willie Best in the few films that he did. Again, there there's moments where they kind of, you know, ham it up a little bit. But nothing that, to me, was racially insensitive. I think sometimes... Um, you know the other the people jump to automatic conclusions I was like watch the films and consider the time period in which the film was made and I think this this film too is is perfectly fine if I'm wrong I'm, I'm I'd love to hear other people's opinions and if maybe there's something that that I that I missed uh, I'd love to hear about it in all seriousness because I didn't think that it was but I know that it does bother some people and the story it kept me guessing like, towards the end, I mean, I guess this would be somewhat of a spoiler, but I'm not going to worry about that. Richard Carlson, he appeared, I thought, ah, he's going to be the bad guy. Yeah. And yeah. then something happens, and I thought, I mean, I literally wrote in my notes, oh, I guess not. And then I wrote, aha, it is him. I mean, there, it, it really kept me guessing. I wasn't familiar with what was going to happen, and I thought it was well-written, and it's a good mystery, and it has twists and turns, and... I, I didn't really expect that. I love the uh, the ghost sequence in it. You know, I thought that was incredibly well done and, and funny. I think Bob Hope was never over the top in his performance. He was uh, straightforward when needed to be. He threw in comedy when necessary. And I think that's why this movie works as a horror comedy, because I think that it really keeps the balance. There's moments that... No, it's not going to scare today's audiences necessarily, but they're, they're creepy moments and certainly were creepy for 1940. And I don't think that, I think that those hold up really well. And I don't think that, I think the movie was in balance. I don't think that, that it leaned one direction or the other. I think it was, it was very much split down the middle. I think it was, you know, 50-50. And that's what, in my opinion, a horror comedy works best. If you've got a movie that's that's got too much comedy a lot of times the horror elements come off as odd. I think an exception to that would be something like Young Frankenstein, which is clearly a comedy with the horror elements on the fringe. But most of the time, I think if you do a 50-50 split, that's when it works best. And I think that it worked worked well here. There's another movie from around this time period that Universal did. I think it's called Horror Island. And that's a movie where... They, they they set up this, and it seems like it's going to be serious, and then kind of devolves into a, to a very much more of a comedy. And I remember watching that, and that's a movie that I'm not sure. I think it's on a box set somewhere that they put out. It was, it was kind of added in with some other titles, but for a long time, like it was not released on VHS tape. It was one of these films that was circulating the bootleg market. And that's a film where the balance was out of whack and it, and it devolved into too much of a comedy. Here, I think that they kept it very evenly balanced. And I think as far as Bob Hope goes, he was playing a character, not a, I guess, a personality. He wasn't just put in there for the laughs. His arc, his story, his purpose for being there, it's more substantial. And, and Universal horror classic 
Movie Archive. That's the name of the box set. And uh, I'm looking at it right now. Universal Horror Classic Movie Archive is the interesting box set that has Horror Island. Here's the movies that it's paired with. And this was a what's left in the Universal Archives. Let's slap together a box set. You have The Black Cat from 1941. You have Man-Made Monster with Lon Chaney Jr. Horror Island, Night Monster, which features Bela Lugosi as a servant, and Captive Wild Woman. Hmm. Why bother with the other two Wild Woman films, but let's just throw the first one out there. And I think that's... The other two Wild Woman movies got released only through the Universal Vault series. I don't think those ever got officially released in an official box set. So that kind of tells you Horror Island is just, is, is, I'm just, you know, for me, I'm thinking of the time period. And I'm just, for me, I think there's a comparison as to when a movie doesn't work as well, as opposed to where the comedy and horror is, is works well on this one. Anyway, a tangent, if you will. What trivia do you have for us? Interestingly enough, this was only this was released eight months after the Cat in the Canary. The Cat in the Canary was success, and Ghostbreakers was basically greenlit because of the success of this one. And that's why Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard, Goddard Paulette Goddard were you know cast in this one was because of the work they did in the thirty nine film. Uh, Bob Hope also appeared in two radio adaptations of the Ghostbreakers. Popular uh, in the day, there was a couple of radio shows that would take movies and adapt them into radio adaptation or radio plays, radio adaptations. The Lux Radio Theater was the most common. It was uh, from the 30s, 40s on into the 50s. They did a lot of hour-long film adaptations. Uh, in fact, just over the holidays, it's an annual thing for me to listen to their adaptations of It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. They bring back. In most cases, most of the original cast, as much as they can. He did adaptations on another radio show called Screen Director's Playhouse. That, I think, runs 30 minutes. And so there are very condensed versions of films. He did it in 49 and again in 51. This is interesting. Actor Lloyd Kerrigan, he played the character of Martin. He was that oddball character that kind of kept popping up. He popped up around on the dock outside of the ship he popped up in the in the dinner theater the restaurant he has three prominent scenes and then he's never seen again there's no explanation as to who he is it is certainly implied that there's something going on with him that maybe he's a bigger part of the plot but yet he never pops up again it's led a lot of people over the years to wonder if there were some additional scenes that were deleted or maybe they were intended to be filmed, and for some reason they were just written out of the script, and for they just kept these particular scenes in because the scenes that he's in are integral parts of the film and, and couldn't be taken out without being reshot. Maybe um, they were just tossing in another red herring. I mean, yeah, it could very well be, and then they just never picked up on it. You know, I usually though when they do a red herring. There's a reveal at some point that oh, this guy isn't who he, who he well, thought sure. he was, but maybe that was their intent. I don't know. I, I remember watching it, and I thought, well, what happened to that guy? And then I read about it. I was like, well, nobody knows what happened <laughs> to that guy. So and I think that's all that I've got. I'm like kind of looking through my list here. Um, you know, with Cat and the Canary, um, you can get this. You can get that movie through the Universal Vault series. 
But you can get the Cat and the Canary and the Ghostbreakers in a collection called the Bob Hope Class Classic Comedy Collection. Uh, for less than $20, you get the Ghostbreakers, you get the Cat and the Canary, and you get eight other films. Mm. Those are the two best of the lot, but uh, if you like Bob Hope films, um, take a look for 20 bucks. I mean, you get nine films, or uh, ten films, actually. You get ten films in the collection, so... That might be worth checking out if you're a fan of Bob Hope. Yeah, that's, that's all and I've I got. And I would just add, you don't have to be a fan of Bob Hope to what, like this movie. Uh, again, I just treat him as an actor who's sometimes funny, who's playing a role, and he's pretty good in it. And Yeah, I would, yeah, I would agree. I would agree, yeah. I mean, if you've never seen another Bob Hope film and never seen another one after this, he, he does a really good job in this movie of not devolving into over-comedic portrayal not quite the case with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis's oh, Lord. adaptation, Scared Stiff, from 1953. And that's the movie we'll be covering in just a moment. Right after this. Those faces, those terrible faces, I can't stand it. <coughs> Look, there they are again. Don't be scared, folks. No, it's only us. <laughs> If you think that's a tangle, wait until you see what happens to Dean and Jerry when a gang of ruthless killers get on their trail. Somebody's got to move. The heat's on in New York, so they stow away on a cruise to Cuba. Now I know what a sardine feels like. But the chill is on in the haunted castle of Lost Island when the boys go spook hunting with beautiful Elizabeth Scott. In this remake of Ghostbreakers, Mary Carter prepares to take a boat to Cuba to visit the plantation and mansion she inherited and becomes entangled in a web of mystery involving the mob and threats to her safety. Luckily, nightclub entertainer Larry Lawrence is nearby to protect her in the old dark house. Perhaps not so luckily, his friend Myron is also along for the ride. The year is 1953, and it is time for a remake. This time, we're remaking The Ghostbreakers, and this is the fourth adaptation of that stage play by Charles Goddard and Paul Dickey, Scared Stiff, starring Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Yes, it does star them. <laughs> I, You know, and that's not why I didn't like it. It's, again, we're, you know, I'm comparing this to... It's original, Ghostbreakers, uh, same way I compared Cat and Canary to the original, and it just pales in comparison. Not because of Jerry Lewis acting like a fool, it's just the parts of the story that are squandered to focus on the personalities that Martin and Lewis are, and it just, it's very uneven. It was very uneven to me. I mean, taking the character of a fast-talking news radio announcer reporter and turning him into a lounge singer 
that says a lot right there. It's just not the same type of character. The circumstances of him getting involved in the story are more forced. I just did not think overall it, it worked. It worked at all. I have not seen every Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis film. I did actually just buy the two uh, DVD collections that have been re-released by the Warner Archive collection uh, within the last year. I've seen some of their films. I, I do want to watch all of them. Uh, I love Dean Martin. I love Dean Martin music. Jerry Lewis has always been, I'm hot or cold. I'm either ready to watch a Jerry Lewis film or I'm done. I'm not. You know, I think Jerry Lewis is like an acquired taste. You like him or you don't. I'm kind of on the fence. There are times I do and times I don't. That said, immediately by making this a Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis film, they had to make changes because you got to have Dean Martin singing. That's a, a prerequisite uh, that he's going to break out in song. Sometimes in the movies, I know that it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And it depends on the script. Much like I think with Abbott and Costello films, sometimes their characters, and, I, and I'm, I'm about halfway through watching the Abbott and Costello films, and some of the ones on the second half I've already seen over the years, I know that sometimes their characters seem to make sense, and how they get involved in the story flows, and other times it's forced. And other times they're playing characters that don't really make a lot of sense at times. I think that's what we had here. We had a script, and they tried shoehorning the the characters into it, and in so doing, they had to make some uh, they had to make some adaptations. And you know, I could have taken that. I, I I accepted sort of how the lounge singer got involved in the story with the mob and all of that, and but when they get to Cuba, and he suddenly he's arrived in a place he didn't want to go and he has a he's set up to do an act while he's there that didn't make any sense to me that's forcing you know well we got to get another musical number in you know let's get him on stage yeah 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 i agree it, yeah you know i i i wanted to like the, and i've seen this movie many many years ago and i really wanted to like it as much as the Ghostbreakers, because I again the Ghostbreakers, I don't know that I've seen that before. I think maybe I had, but many many years ago, I didn't remember anything about it. So it was when I saw that, and I'll admit uh, the Ghostbreakers and Scared Stiff, I actually saw several months ago. I saw them back in October because I covered these movies over at the blog for my Thirty One Days of Halloween. The movies are still very fresh in my mind, and I know that when I watched the Ghostbreakers. And I just I didn't remember anything about it. And Scared Stiff, again, I'd seen that many, many years ago, and I didn't remember anything about it either. So they were like first-time viewings for me. I wanted to like Scared Stiff as much as The Ghostbreakers, and I, and I just I didn't. I love Dean Martin. I love when he breaks out in song. I'm cool with that. Shoehorn that in, it works sometimes. Here, I think because we had seen The Ghostbreakers and seen... This, the superior Bob Hope version, uh, I think that's why it didn't. Ironically, a lot of people prefer Scared Stiff over the Ghostbreakers. And I would just say maybe that's an acquired taste. Jerry Lewis. So you have Dean Martin playing Larry Todd, the Larry Lawrence character. And you've got Jerry Lewis playing Myron Mertz, which essentially is, is the Willie Best character in this movie for the most part. Obviously, the different scenario set up, but essentially that's what he's playing. 
And Jerry Lewis is over the top. Jerry Lewis, I'm not sure he's ever been... Well, he has been. You get into some of those later films, and, and like his when he did the Wise Guy TV series and uh, some of the films towards the end of his career, he certainly is much more laid back and much more reserved. But as you look at his films of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and and even on into some of his revival in, in the in the 1980s, I mean, yeah, he's over the top. He's zany. He's cartoonish. That's yeah, that's his shtick. That's what Jerry Lewis does. And so going into this movie, you got to know you're going to see some crazy stuff that you just certainly didn't see in the 1940 version. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. And for me, I really wanted to love it, but I, it, it bothered me on this one because of Ghostbreakers is a better film. Well, let me ask you this. What is Jerry Lewis supposed to be? Now, you talk about offensive because this role in the other was a black man at a time when they were servants and all of that. But what is Jerry Lewis supposed to be? I mean, is he just a fool? Is he a simpleton? And you know where I'm going with this. Well, I, You I, could take it as almost being as politically incorrect as the black. Yeah. Because what, is he mentally challenged? What What is his problem? Why is he like that? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's... that's that's his stick, right? Jerry Lewis is always a simpleton. Is is probably a good way to describe it. That's you know, hello, lady. You know, he does his little shtick, and that's he goes crazy. And yeah, you're supposed to laugh at that. And that's is that something we laugh about to laugh at today? Probably not. However, you look at movies like Dumb and Dumber, which has been done not too many years ago. You look at some of the films of Jim Carrey. True. Uh, the Mask, Ace Ventura. That's Jerry Lewis. That's 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 really Jerry Lewis could easily have done those films. It's zany comedy that you know people either love or hate. You, you either want your comedy to be sophisticated, or you want your comedy to be stupid. I think when you look at like comedic duos, you think of. Uh, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott Costello, you know Martin and Lewis, to a lesser extent Hope and Crosby because they didn't do as many movies, and all those different you know comedians have a different way of, of going about. But if you look at like Abbott and Costello, Bud Abbott, straight man, Lou Costello, the fat goofy guy who can never get the girl, who you know his whole thing is that he's not as zany as Jerry Lewis, but he certainly is never seen as a, as a dashing guy like Bud Abbott is. When you look at Bob Hope Bing Crosby, they're a little more even in, as far as their portrayal, but, but Bing Crosby sings, always gets the girl. Bob Hope is, is always kind of, you know, considered the lesser of the two. Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, they were equals. They really were. They both had bad luck. Very rarely did they have, did one have good luck with the women and the other didn't. Most of the time, they were happily married and they did something and make both their wives mad at them. They were always down on their luck together. And I think for me personally, going on a totally non-horror related mm. note here, but Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy worked best out of all the different comedic duos because they were much more equals. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis... D. Martin was the, the suave guy who got the gal, and Jerry Lewis was always the, the village idiot. 
That's how it was portrayed. Did they always... Was that always their relationship in these movies, that they were friends? And I think so. I think in all their movies. They, they did um, 16 films, and Scared Stiff was the eighth film. So it, this was smack dab in the middle of their of their films. They they uh, started 1949 with My Friend Irma. This comes in 1953, and they ended their film career in 1956 with a movie called Hollywood or Bust. I, there may be again. I haven't seen all the movies. I think there may be some of the films where they end up kind of together, uh, but. Yeah, it was kind of like all the Evan Costello movies. Generally, they're they're paired together. Evan Costello had one movie called The Time of Their Lives, I think, where their characters weren't together. There was a reason. They weren't talking to each other during the making of that movie. They were legitimately not talking to each other in real life, on the set, and had very little to do with together in the movie. But that was uh, because of their you know real-life problems. Yeah, usually Martin and Lewis were were together, and Dean Martin was was always kind of getting Jerry Lewis out of a jam kind of scenario. Yeah. I just it makes me think of like their origin story. Why would a suave, smooth nightclub singer end up with a friend that's a moron? Uh, but you know, I didn't really mind Jerry Lewis. I you know I didn't find a lot of it funny, but you know it wasn't so bad. I would turn it off. In fact. The parts where he was incorporated into the nightclub act, I really laughed. I really enjoyed. And I just wondered, under a, maybe a more a controlled circumstance like that, and that, I, this is terrible, I don't even know. I think I asked you earlier, did Martin and Lewis have a stage act before? Because I can find myself enjoying Jerry Lewis more in that than as part of a story that's supposed to have a plot and you know move forward uh, their, their stage act is funny i mean yeah it's they come out and dean martin you know they're basically talking on the mic and and jerry lewis is doing all sorts of crazy stuff actually there's a a well-known story where martin and lewis were on a telethon and i think bob hope was there but definitely bing crosby was bing crosby wore a toupee and it was well known and jerry lewis Basically, like, is, like, jumping on Bing and starts messing with his hair. Bing Crosby leaves the the stage immediately and didn't come back as long as Jerry Lewis was there. And as legend has it, Bing never forgave him, never spoke one word to him again. Jerry Lewis talked about this in The Tonight Show and said that he never would have done that he never. He was never. It was just wrapped up in the moment. He said he never intended and never would have done that to to Bing. But you know, other people say Jerry Lewis had tendency at times to be a jerk, and others say, yeah, he he probably could have done something, and Bing didn't want to be embarrassed, and so it was probably something Jerry Lewis shouldn't have even gone there. I think Bob Hope was actually, I think this Jerry Lewis was subbing for Johnny Carson and Bob Hope was the guest and they talked about that. Bob didn't have any problems with with, with Jerry, but he did comment that, yeah, Bing never forgave him because mm. Bing legitimately thought that Jerry was going to do something. So their stage play, their, their stage act was, yeah, Jerry Lewis going crazy and it was fun. It was a fun thing to see because he would go crazy, he'd go with the band, he'd, he'd feed off the audience 
And sometimes that worked in the movie, sometimes it didn't. I've never seen him in anything when he was so young. I think he was 27 when he made this. I was sort of in awe of that, of like the youthful energy, because I'm more accustomed to him later in like The Big Mouth or Nutty Professor. So I was was interested and I enjoyed it from that aspect. Again, I'm just repeating myself. My problems with the movie aren't necessarily that, you know, Jerry Lewis is in it. It's just that. It's at the expense of the the parts of the story that I liked so much in The Ghostbreakers. Well, I think the the horror elements in this are certainly downplayed as opposed to The Ghostbreakers, where I think the ghosts element was was much better done uh, in The Ghostbreakers, whereas Scared Stiff, um, it, the, the horror was kind of pushed so far to the back burner that it, it, it was almost non-existent. Well, in, in The Ghostbreakers, they took a lot of time building up how horrible this mansion was going to be and the legend of, of the ghost and the zombie and the caretaker there. There was a lot of dread that built before they got there. There was very little of that. I kept thinking to myself, come on, you've got to build this place up as a... You know, they hardly treat it as something that's going to be scary, you know, when they get there. Well, I think you, you talked about that Ghostbreakers had atmosphere, and Scared Stiff had a little, but very little. It, it didn't have anything compared to Ghostbreakers. And that may be, too, the, just the time period. I mean, 1940s, I look at, at at horror films from the 30s and 40s as having just, there's a certain type of old, I don't know, old school, old film era creepiness in, in, in certain films, the old Dark House films in particular. I, old Dark House films, exactly. If you watch old Dark House films from the 30s and 40s, you get a creepy vibe. You don't get it as much when they did old Dark House films in the 50s and 60s. It tended to come across more forced, more generic. And, and that may be the problem with Scared Stiff is that there was a glossier look to the film in general, where I think there was kind of a grittiness to the Ghostbreakers, partially because it's 1940s, they had a lower budget, whereas Scared Stiff had a bigger budget, much more polished, they went a few more musical numbers. There was a definite, a very different vibe in Scared Stiff, and so that, they didn't, they didn't have the ability to add, add the atmosphere you can pull that off in films. Look at Ghost of Mr. Chicken. Definitely a comedy. I mean, Don Knotts is, is hysterical in that film. But they made the, the haunted house and that look creepy. And, and while you're never really thinking this is all real and it's, you know, but there is a level of atmosphere in that movie, even during the, the most comedic moments. And, and I don't know that Scared Stiff had that. I just had a thought. How much of that do you think can be attributed to black and white versus color? Well, yeah, I think obviously with the old Dark House film, black and white, you, you're, well, I mean, with a black and white film, you can use shadows. Well, and, uh, and, and uh, Ghostbreakers was black and white, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, Ghost, Scared Stiff was too. It was? Yeah, it was black and white. Okay. Did you watch the colorized? <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. I watched the colorized version. No, it's black like, and white. It was? It's black and white, but it, okay. it had a glossier look to it, though. Much more polished appearance. So I think that that's that's why I think it it didn't it didn't have the atmosphere, and I'm not even sure that it attempted to have the same level of atmosphere that the 1940 version did. Let's talk about the women. I uh, I don't know this Elizabeth Scott that was the main girl. I didn't 
care for her. I no, didn't. I no. didn't think she was somebody that she uh, wasn't. That Dean Martin would go Gaga over. No, uh, she she had she was a, a harsh character and had zero chemistry with Dean Martin. Carla and I watched this movie together, and that was something she commented on immediately. And she says, "Are they supposed to be?" Like romantically inclined, and she says, "I'm not getting that feel at all." And she actually liked Scared Stiff better because she had some problems with Willie Best in the Ghostbreakers. Um, but yeah, I mean, but, but she was very much in the same vibe as Elizabeth Scott. Just didn't bring anything to the table, and and Dean Martin. It doesn't take much to get chemistry with Dean Martin. I mean. He, he he is who he is. He's just kind of suave. He's kind of goofy. He'll he'll sing a song. All you got to do is just put forth a little effort, and you're going to get chemistry with Dean Martin. <laughs> Elizabeth Scott just couldn't pull it off, and so I'm I'm going to blame that on on her performance as an actress. It fell flat for me. And then the other one was Carmen Miranda. I was kind of excited. This is actually the first movie I've ever seen with Carmen Miranda. Of course, I've seen clips and stuff. Uh, so I enjoyed that. Uh, and I think this was her last movie, wasn't it? Yeah. I had actually seen her in 1947's Copacabana, Groucho Marx's first solo film. The Marx Brothers would make one more movie after that. 1946, Night in Casablanca was really the last true Marx Brothers film. And then Groucho Marx was going solo. He does Copacabana with with Carmen Miranda, basically plays her agent in that movie. It's not a bad movie. Groucho does a good job in that. And then, you know, this, of course, coming, uh, that was in 47, so this coming some five years later. Yeah, ironically, she, she would die of a heart attack just two years later in 1955 at the age of 46. So this was her final film, yeah. Was she always just a role like that, or did she have like leading roles? I don't know. I mean, every time I've seen her, she's she's that that character. I think that was very much who she was, and I know that um, I'm drawing a blank as far as to what country she comes from. But I mean, they've got like a Carmen Miranda museum there with all of her outfits and stuff. She's she's definitely revered, or at least you know, probably by an older generation. I'm sure modern day. People really have no clue who she is, but there is a museum there paying homage to to who she was. So I think if she didn't have that persona in earlier appearances, it's generally forgotten because it was that persona that well that made her that made her famous. Does Portugal sound right? That sounds right. Maybe she yeah. was born near Porto, Portugal, in the town of Marco de Canavesas. Yeah, that, that, that sounds possible. Yeah, that maybe. But she became big in Brazil. Brazil is where the museum's at. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, now that I'm thinking Brazil. At the time, she was just, you know, royalty to them. And so, and supposedly the museum is still open and still does well as a tourist attraction. Because I think Carmen Miranda is still kind of remembered by, you know, certainly people of our generation. I remember. Oh, Willard Scott on the Today Show dressing up as Carmen Miranda for uh, several Halloween appearances. So as crazy as that sounds, it, I'm sure most of our audience knows who we're talking about. Maybe Ben doesn't. You know, <laughs> Steve, just explain to him who Willard Scott dressing up as drag as Carmen Miranda was. Ben will be even more worried about us. I uh, just have one last note. Uh, in In both movies, Ghostbreakers and this, there's a scene when... Uh, the men go to the house first, 
so they want to check it out and then Joyce or not Joyce I'm getting her confused with the other movie uh, what's her name Mary Carol Mary yeah. comes in a boat later in the first one in both cases she has to jump out of the boat and swim to shore in the first movie you know she does it she gets out she's wet fine the second movie Oh, she's got her bathing suit on under her, under her clothes. She just takes her clothes off, and she has her bathing cap. Puts it on, swims to shore. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say she thought, well, I'm going in the water, I might need my swimming suit. I don't know, but I that really, I thought, what? That is, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know if that was written to her contract, maybe that she couldn't get her hair wet or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, the only other thing I have, two little tidbits, one... Norman Lear was actually contributed additional dialogue. I don't know what he contributed, but he did do some additional dialogue, of course. He went on to become a television legend, creating such classics as All in the Family, Good Times, and the Jeffersons. And this, of course, there there was a fun little cameo at the end of this film from Bob Hope and Bing Crosby playing two skeletons in a closet. This was uh, payback for Martin and Lewis having a cameo in The Road to Bali in 1952. Uh, They appeared in a dream sequence. And uh, Dean Martin would kind of do it again in uh, 1962. He had a cameo with Frank Sinatra in the last of the road films, The Road to Hong Kong. So, again, a little comedic note there for the fact that there there certainly was some work, some collaboration and respect between... Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, and uh, D. Martin and Jerry Lewis, at least at one time. I do have one more question for you. On the docks, when there's the confusion with the trunks, there's a drunk that comes around, and there's a bit where Dean Martin is pretending he's a ventriloquist and, you know, pulls Jerry Lewis out. I thought it was kind of funny, but the drunk was just too much. Was he anybody? Or it, was that his... Shtick, was he well-known? I didn't recognize him, so maybe I should. Maybe he's been in some other films. I'm drawing a blank. I don't know. Maybe that's a follow-up for next next time. I Yeah, I, I, I don't, don't even know. know what actor it was or what his character name was, but that went on and on. I mean, he came back later. Yeah. I think it, he was on the boat, maybe. Yeah, it was, it was a bit prolonged, so I, I don't know. Okay. Might have been just a shtick for the movie. Maybe he was known... For, for something that he did. I don't know. Maybe our listeners out there know. Yes. Steve, do you know? <laughs> I'm going I'm to call on you. So that it for it then? I think so. I, I think we're... It sounds like we're in... I don't know. I mean, I think we both agreed the Ghost Breast, Ghostbusters. I knew I'd be able to do it at some <laughs> point. The Ghost Breakers was by far the best of the three. What would you consider was, was second and what would you consider third? Oh... Gosh, I don't honestly know. See, I would say Scared Stiff was second. I, I guess I would. I think it's slightly better than Cat in the Canary. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. Okay. I don't have a compelling argument to disagree, so... <laughs> they were all weren't hits, but I think it was fun. Fun way to start off the, the year with a little bit of a laugh. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. You know, there's definitely a lot of other horror comedies out there that... Maybe some were better than what we covered, but uh, I think there's a lot of fun Three Stooges shorts that have uh, horror elements in there. There's certainly some fun Laurel and Hardy ones. There's one, it's a three-reeler that they did. I think it's called the Laurel and Hardy Murder Case. It's kind of like an old dark house 
type thing that has, if I remember correctly, it has very much a Mark of the Vampire ending. Yeah. Not all is as it Oh, seemed. well, speaking of that, Scared Stiff had that. Yes, yeah. That, I had blocked that out. I did, that actually, was... I did too until you mentioned that. Yeah. Oh, man, you know how I feel about those. That was the worst. Yeah. All yeah. three been leaning back in the door to say, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, I, I hate that breaking the, the fourth wall, uh, you know, uh, much like in Return of the Vampire, you know, there's just moments where that happens and I'm like, ugh. Don't do that. Just just end the movie. I don't know. I will say, uh, actually, I guess let me just add real quickly that if you're interested in Scared Stiff, it's actually kind of a hard movie to find. There was two volumes put out for the uh, the Dean Martin Jerry Lewis collection, and those went out of print. Uh, they were grabbing astronomical prices, like two hundred dollars per set. Warner Archives redid the sets. I managed to pick them up apparently right before they went out of print again and so now they're hard to find again i think the only martin lewis film that you can find easily is at war with the army because it is a uh, public domain flick other than that you're going to have to to probably fork out some money if you want d martin jerry lewis collection jerry lewis you know has maintained a pretty tight grip on his films and uh, for the most part uh, most of his films have been released over the years, and, and uh, they kind of fluctuate between availability and, and not. But generally, most of them you're going to pay a at least, you know, you're not going to find them too cheap, I guess is what I'm saying. So uh, if you're looking for Scared Stiff, you're going to have to kind of uh, just be watchful. I'm sure you can probably get that set. I think it's in volume two. Um, anyway, you're, you're going to have to kind of keep an eye on eBay or whatever. I think you can probably find it if you're lucky for a relatively cheap price, but uh, shop around. Buyer beware. I didn't have any trouble at all. I just borrowed it from you. And then that's an alternative. Yes, maybe that's a service I need to start up to earn a little extra cash on the side. The uh, Chamberlain uh, Film Archive. Let's take another break and come back and row this boat home uh, with our normal features. We'll be right back. Come gather round for the song of the angel of man. And for treat good eat, there's nothing better than enchiladas so nice and hot. Enchiladas, I got, I got. Enchiladas so nice and hot. Enchiladas. I got, I got. Not bad. Little more Tabasco, maybe a clove. Little gasoline. Oh, that's for the stove. Enchiladas, so nice and hot. Enchiladas, I got, I got. My name is Don Ferdinand, I'm the enchilada. 
thing. I make a cheese, if you please, that is positively. Uh. And for a treat, try the meat, that is absolutely. Uh. After you buy it and dry it, you'll say it's simply. Uh. Enchiladas, I don't know. Enchiladas. Oh, hello. Welcome back. This is a good month for once, as far as releases go, at least the quantity. We have a few more movies coming out than we did last month. Uh, we are a week into January, or just over a week, so a couple of these have already come out, but I want to mention them that on the 8th, um, which earlier this week, Kino Lorber released The House That Would Not Die, a 1970 TV movie with Barbara Stanwyck, and Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice, 1969 movie with Geraldine Page and Ruth Gordon. I thought she was uh, hanging out with uh, Auntie Rue. Wasn't that the other movie? Who slew Auntie Rue? Yes. Came out about the same time. Yeah, that's one of those hagsploitation movies. Ooh, that's an. We need to do one of the, an episode of those and pick because there's a whole. Yeah, it's a whole. Sub-genre. That's a whole sub yeah. sub sub genre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On the fifteenth, so this upcoming Tuesday, as we record this, Shout Factory is releasing Obsession from 1976. That's a Brian De Palma film, not horror strictly, but it's a good thriller, another one of his interpretations of a Hitchcock movie. And for Hammer fans, Plague of the Zombies from 1966 is coming out on Blu-ray from Shout. And from Arrow comes the Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion. Arrow's been putting out a lot of these, and in the commentaries I've listened to on the ones I've watched, they always talk about this movie, so I'm eager to take a look at that. They're always loaded with extra features and bonuses, and I've learned a lot about uh, Giallo films specifically from watching those uh, extra features. Then on the 29th, we've got a, a triple hit here. The remake of Suspiria is, is coming out. I mentioned that just because of its relationship with the original. Yeah. <laughs> I really want to see it again. You know, I listened to Greg and Genius talk about it on uh, Nightmare Junkhead and made me want to see it again. So, I, you know, we got a screener of it. I think I'll watch that. Yeah, I'm not going to buy it. No, I think we got a screener. I think I, I, I may be sitting on my shelf. Maybe I didn't put it on there yet. Yeah. I'll rewatch it at some point. I, I was greatly underwhelmed by that film. Yeah. Also, All the Colors of the Dark, another giallo from 72. Not from Arrow, though, but from Severin. And then, <laughs> I mentioned this, not horror, although I suppose there are some horrific aspects, but on the 29th, Sarah T., Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic. I mentioned that for several reasons. 1975, Shout Factory's putting it out. Number one, Linda Blair stars. Number two, Richard Donner directed it. And number three... This, let's see, I would have been 12 years old in 75. I remember this movie distinctly. It was very controversial that this, I think it's the first time they did a movie like this about a teenage alcoholic. And I believe I watched it, but there was some, you know, controversy surrounding it. It came out with a lot of ballyhoo, and I think it was ahead of its time for the, the subject matter that it portrayed so uh, just for old time's sake i thought i'd throw that one in there i i do remember the the hype and and controversy around that as well i i think i may have seen it but i i don't remember anything about yeah, it i don't either well you can get it on blu-ray from shop factory <laughs> 
Uh, just one birthday I'm going to mention because it's somebody we spoke about in our episode today, and that is George Zuko. He was born on January 11th in 1886. Anniversaries of movies that were released in January over the years. And these, again, are ones we've either mentioned tonight or have mentioned in previous episodes. Plague of the Zombies, that's coming out on Blu-ray, came out uh, in the UK originally on January 9th of 1966. Children of the Damned, which we talked about with uh, Village of the Damned, came out on January 10th, 1964. And Island of Lost Souls came out on January 12th, 1933. We, of course, talked about that in our Island of Dr. Moreau episode. All of those episodes you should be able to find in our back catalog. Our back catalog, yes. absolutely. Oh, that yes. sounds so official. I wanted to, to just step in here. Something that just got announced a couple days ago was the Boris Karloff Bell Lugosi collection yeah. on Blu-ray. I saw the listing for this. I'm curious. I'm definitely intrigued because these four films that they include, uh, which are uh, The Black Hat, The Raven, The Invisible Ray, and Black Friday, were all part of the Bella Lugosi collection, which was one of the first box sets on DVD that Universal released. Um, now, that also included, the original set also included Murders in the Room Morgue. And uh, unfortunately, that's not included on this Blu-ray set. I'm intrigued, first off, to see if, you know, the quality is really going to be that much better because I haven't heard good things about the most recent Universal set uh, and I believe the the issues with Revenge of the Creature are still really unresolved because the substitution discs apparently still had some, some issues. This is coming out from Shout Factory. This right? is coming out from Shout Factory and they claim that there's some extras what? I don't know. Uh, maybe some trailers. I don't know. These may have had trailers, but I'm interested in the upgrade because this particular set, being one of the first sets, the original DVD set, I should say, was on a dual-sided disc. I When I originally got that, I had problems with that on my player. It would keep sticking at the Universal logo part, but I don't have problems with the Blu-ray players I have now. So, But, uh, you know, that automatic oh i would have jumped it got the upgrade maybe well now i've got what about murders in the room morgue because now it's not disappointing i I wonder why they didn't opt to include that film i guess because it doesn't star boris karloff and i guess they're calling it the boris karloff bella lugosi collection which the original set probably should have been called anyway because all the movies except for murders starred uh lugosi and karloff i don't know and I hate when they do that because then you got this one film on this set. If you upgrade, you can't get rid of the original set because you got that one film. I'm glad to see Shout Factory doing it. I guess my, my big question is, are they going to be doing Murders in the Remorgue at some point? Um, and is there are these been truly remastered or are they just been, you know, get the, the high def upgrade, which there's a difference. Um, and, and I think that's the problem with some of these films is that they're being automatically, you know, thrown out on Blu-ray, but there's not really much effort into upgrading the quality of the film. Sometimes it's visible. There's a visible difference. Other times to me, it's not enough of a difference to, 
do the double dip and buy the Blu-ray again. I don't automatically. I used to, but I don't automatically just dive into the Blu-ray anymore. Well, maybe they're going to put out Murders in the Rue Morgue as its own standalone with a ton of extra features. And I think if I recall, we talked about that. I think I... Did I like that more than you? Uh, I think we both liked it okay. equally. I, I don't know that we okay. one of us liked it more than the other. Yeah, I, I love that movie, so... You know, it's got you know certainly some some problems, but it's a classic in pre-code creepiness and certainly very violent at times for that time period. I don't know. I just wanted to throw that in. Yes, they and it's I got think a beautiful it comes cover. out in March, right? I thought it was April. Oh, I thought that's okay. what they said. Uh, March or April? Beautiful cover. The cover is done by the same artist who did the covers for the Vincent Price collection. Oh. Um, so you know, Shell Factory would make me happy if they re-released volume one and got the rights for all those films back i don't think that's going to happen but someday maybe let's move on to the tv terror guide and talk about sven guli we've got a variety of uh, movies this month Uh, ghost of frankenstein has already aired on the fifth but coming up tomorrow night which again will have passed by people hear this but uh village of the giants from 1965 i will be watching that actually i I have never seen it i haven't either uh so i'd like to watch that too on the 19th dracula's daughter from 1936 and then i also will be watching on the 26th because the werewolf from 1956 i have never seen that saw it a long time ago and i don't know i might still have it in my collection i don't know that i purged it I did purge a couple of odd titles. I remember liking it. If I remember, that's the one... There's a scene maybe over a dam, I believe, and it takes place in the woods. I think he's a father... And the, and the mother and the, and, uh, or the, like the wife and the son are involved in, in trying to get him to calm down and not be... I don't know. I mean, that's... If I remember correctly, it's, that's the gist of the film, and it's... Uh, police are after him and stuff like that it's hmm. it's it's kind of good the tagline or the synopsis that they gave in the Svengooli newsletter was that it's not your normal werewolf story i believe the way he becomes a werewolf may be unique or different yeah, there's something different about it I, i'm pretty sure that's the movie i'm thinking hmm. of it it's different and it's in, it's it's kind of cool um yeah i think i still have that in my collection actually And then on TCM, we've got uh, three marathons during the month. uh, Coming up on the 16th, which will be uh, the closest Wednesday to the airing of this, uh, is an all-day marathon. It starts at 6.15 in the morning with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931. Or should I say Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? (laughs) And then ending with The Haunting from 1963 at 5 o'clock. Lots of good stuff in between. On the 28th, there is another marathon, mostly sci-fi. Uh, it includes The Time Machine from 1960 and Forbidden Planet from 1956. And then on the 30th is another all-day marathon. Starts with Chamber of Horrors from 1966 and ends with Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which I believe is the most commonly played horror movie on TCM. It seems like it's on almost every month. I have not seen that movie in so long. I think the last time I saw it was in the 1980s. When I had a DVR, I think I recorded it probably 60 billion times on TCM. And then when Space would run out, it was always the first movie I dumped. It's a long movie. That always deters me from watching it. But I watched it sometime within the last year. And 
And it's good. We we got to do a hagsploitation. We do. Episode. We did. add that to our list. Hagsploitation. That's what it's called. <laughs> I know. It's I know. Hagsploitation. Or uh, there's an or psycho bitty. Which do you like better, hagsploitation or psycho? I like hagsploitation. Yes, I do too. Yeah, yeah. So that's it for the TV terror guide. What are we doing on our next episode, Richard? Well, you know, I think it's time for us to dive back to some classic horror, and uh, what better way than to honor someone who is having a birthday next month, and that is a, a second-generation legend in Lon Chaney Jr. Um, and much as we have done where we've done like Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, we're going to take a look at three films from the uh, beginning of his career, the middle, and the end. So next month, prepare your homework assignments now. We're going to be taking a look at Man-Made Monster, which I believe is 1941. 1941. That was before The Wolfman. So that was his first big horror film. Um, The Alligator People from 1959. A lot happened to him in those 18 (laughs) years in between. And then Spider Baby from 1968, I believe. Not at the end of his career, but I think the last big film of his career. He did a few more after that, Dracula versus Frankenstein. I think, yeah, you know, whatever. He he did some some rough films. Spider Baby, definitely cult classic, but had a bigger budget than some of the last films of his career. So beginning, middle, end of his career. And we'll, uh, as we've done in the past, we'll give a little bit of tidbits about Lon Chaney Jr. or Creighton Chaney, as he was known. When we mentioned Of Mice and Men, 1939, he was in that. Wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He played, was it Lenny? Lenny. Lonnie? Yeah. Lenny. It's been a long time since I've seen that. But anyway, yeah. So that's the movie that made him a star. And then he decided to go the route of, of horror movies. But he had actually done a lot of uh, films in the 30s playing heavies and gangsters and things like that. And pops up in movies like My Favorite Brunette when you least expect him. So that'll be next month's theme, The Lon Chaney Jr. Show. That's another uh, episode we could do sometime is not horror movies, but ones that featured horror icon, like we could do of Mice and Men. Yeah. I just mean, for fun, I mean. Yeah, I mean, there certainly are, are some films out there where uh, Bela Lugosi, I think his most famous was, was it Nanotchka, I think, that he did like, and it pops up on Turner Classic Movies from time to time. And, uh, well, Boris Karloff did uh, several films uh, in the late 40s that were, I'm thinking, gosh, Unconquered is one of them, where he, he plays Native American chiefs in, in a couple of films. I'm trying to think other, you know, he did some other films in the 50s, small guest roles, but I'm trying to think of, of non-horror films where Karloff was a lead, and I, I don't know that he he did very many of those. He did bit parts in films like uh, The Venetian Affair and Sabaka and the island monster, which is horrible, but yeah, that'd be a, that'd be an interesting idea. We've no shortage of Vincent ideas. Vincent Price certainly. We could uh, choose a lot yeah. of Vincent Price films that he did that were not from the horror genre, and that that would be fun. I will add that Spider Baby is one of the movies included in one of those TCM marathons. So if you don't have access to that and want to watch it before our episode, I don't recall which date that was on, but it's either the 16th, the 28th, or the 30th. How about the others, Richard? Are those, do you know if they're available? How can people find them? Well, I mean, uh, Man Made Monster is part of this Universal Horror Classic Movie Archive collection, which I think you can still find at a relatively cheap price. I do believe it was put out by the Universal 
Vault series, I believe. And as for the Alligator People, it was on DVD at one point, probably out of print, but you could probably find a cheap copy of that, I would think, relatively easily. Not a movie that pops up on, on television too often. Man-Made Monster will pop up on Sven every once in a while. Doubtful that it's going to pop up between now and next month, but I, I know that I've seen it on Sven I think Man-Made Monster should be relatively easy to find and Alligator People as well, so it shouldn't be too hard to find those. I have Alligator People on DVD. A guy at work several years ago was selling just odd, random DVDs and have the alligator people, so I'm like, yeah, sign me up. Okay, let's remind everybody of our call-in number, 616-649-2582. That's 649-CLUB. Please call and leave us feedback. You can also email us at classichorrorsclub at gmail.com. We do have a favor. Please rate us on iTunes. Just takes a second to give us a, your honest opinion, and I understand that helps us find new listeners so if you can find it in your heart stop what you're doing right now give us a rating we would certainly appreciate it you know one thing we didn't talk about before we officially close is what's going on in your world and and what's going on over at the blog you're right you're right we didn't nothing really new just continuing on monday with a movie of the week with the headline game on Wednesday and the TV terror guide on Friday. And occasionally, if I get to see a uh, home video release before it comes out, there will be a review of that on Tuesday. Uh, and then lots of stuff on social media. We have a YouTube channel, uh, Classic Horrors Club, that does trailers. And try to spread it around and post something here and there most days of the week. But no, no special... Well, emphasis I, or uh, or focus this month. I appreciated your TV terror guy because it reminded me to set my uh, recorder for the robot versus the Aztec mummy and Night of the Lepus. <laughs> I have enough room on my DVR. I, I taped all six of the Thin Man movies uh, over the holidays. I, I got TCM again. I dropped it and got it back again because I wanted the Thin Man uh, series of films, because I, I knew that those would be movies. I love those movies. Uh, have you ever seen those, Thin Man? A long time ago. I've not seen them all. They're a lot of fun, and I know that that was something that, yeah, they're 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 murder mysteries with comedy mixed in, and it's a, they're great. And I know that uh, Derek absolutely loves those movies over at Monster Kid Radio. I know that Carla will love them, and so, but I have enough room, and so you don't own those. I actually do not own the Thin Man movies. I need to. Every time I try to, to find the box set, it's always high-priced. So that's always been on my wish list, but I, I don't have those. As for me, uh, it's been very quiet. You know, I did a lot of stuff last month as far as the countdown to Christmas, and I was pretty busy over at Dread Media. And uh, This month has been kind of quiet. I, I did something with the... Uh, monthly Mimiverse audio cast and uh, or the Mimiverse monthly audio cast. I always get that confused. Haven't been on Dread Media this month. Des is doing some action films and I've been drawn to blank. I've been told I can contribute if I want and I I've not come up with anything that's been inspirational. I have a few ideas but haven't dived into them yet so I don't know if I'll have time to do it or not. And the blog's been relatively quiet as well uh, but I have a couple of ideas of some articles that I want to kind of dive into before the end of the month, I want to do a retrospective on the road movies, having just wrapped those up. Not horror-related, but film-related. 
also still toying around with kind of doing a compare and contrast between the uh, the different versions of Hunchback of Notre Dame. Well, it's kind of fresh in my mind. I've been wanting to revisit the 39 version. Either this month or next month, That's I think that's going to happen. It's it's definitely on my uh, my list to do. So uh, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com and kccinephile.com is where you can find me. Excellent. I look forward to all of that, um, especially since I had recently revisited Hunchback of Notre Dame with Charles Lawton and thought it was so amazing. I look forward to that. Uh, that's been on my mind ever since we saw that at Halloween, uh, the, the classic uh, silent version. So I'm like... Oh, I want to revisit the '39 version and and then do a compare and contrast. So just uh, those two. What is the Anthony was, Quinn version? I is think there, any... yeah, I think there was a more modern version, but I just want to cover the two yeah. two classic versions. Okay. I'm itching to do that because uh, I, I'm in this classic movie vibe as the new year has started, and and part of it is my mind is already focusing on the Kansas Silent Film Festival, which. I'm sure we'll talk about it in next month's episode. I've been going to that for several years, and this year they're doing like previously lost or incomplete films, and they are showing on the big screen with live music accompaniment Frankenstein from 1910 and the uh, restored version of Metropolis with a live performance by the Mont Aloe Orchestra, if I can say it who do a lot of soundtracks for uh, silent films. They're going to be there live uh, doing the complete restored version, which is, what, 140-some minutes long, so they're going to be an intermission. And and uh, they're also doing some Laurel and Hardy and Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, so a lot of fun stuff. So uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that more in depth next month, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm up to. Let's leave then with a song. Couldn't find anything really that with a name that fit. However, there is a group called Scared Stiff. And the song we're going to hear is One More Bite. It's from their a compilation CD called Long Lost Psychobilly Volume 1. And it's available on iTunes. Until next time, take care. Take care, everyone. She rises in the dust When she comes to visit me She never